I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Pete Maverick Mitchell in Top Gun. On June 27, 1990, acclaimed film critic Roger Ebert spent more than half of his review of Tom Cruise's film Days of Thunder not talking about Days of Thunder. Instead, he used the space to postulate the key elements of what he called the Tom Cruise picture, a metastructure which defined Tom Cruise's star persona and box office success, a hero's journey for the 80s and the 90s. These are the elements of the Tom Cruise picture. 1. The Cruise character, invariably a young and naive but naturally talented kid who could be the best if ever he could tame his rambunctious spirit. (laughs) 2. The Mentor, an older man who has done it himself and has been there before and knows talent when he sees it and who has faith in the kid even when the kid screws up because his free spirit has got the best of him. Mm. Three, the superior woman, usually older, taller, and more mature than the Cruz character, who functions as a mentor for his spirit while the male mentor supervises his craft. Damn. Four, the craft, which the gifted young man must master. Five, the arena, in which the young man is tested. Six, the arcana, consisting of the specialized knowledge and lore that the movie knows all about and that we get to learn eventually. Seven, the trail, the journey to visit the principal places where the masters of the craft test one another. Eight, the proto-enemy, the bad guy in the opening wheel of the movie who provides the hero with an opponent to practice on. At first, the crew's character and the proto-enemy dislike each other, but eventually, through a baptism of fire, they learn to love one another. And nine, the eventual enemy, the real bad guy who shows up in the closing reels to provide the hero with a test of his skill, his learning ability, his love, his craft, his knowledge of the arena and of the arcana. Yeah, Roger Ebert got it. Nailed it. it. Oh my God. What a brilliant man. What's crazy is how fully we will see that format realized over, in particular, the next four movies. Oh my God. But really, it's all here in Top Gun. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I love that. Was it? You said the trail. Is it the trail? Is it the trial? It could easily be the trial, but it is, as Ebert has it, the trail because the trail. It, 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 it involves a journey. It's specifically like a journey to a place. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. That that's... one is perhaps the weakest of, of the, the elements that we might struggle it took, to articulate. It gave me a second. Yeah, I hiccuped on that one. But, but that's okay. more notable perhaps in some of the later movies. But we're going to see this structure mimicked in The Color of Money next week yeah. in which pool hustling is the name mm-hmm. of the game. Then in Cocktail... That is a film that goes wildly <laughs> off the rails, you guys. That is one of, I will say, the yeah. strongest first acts in very all of Cruz's career. Arena and craft. And then, wow. <laughs> and then, of course, ultimately, yes, in Days of Thunder, which will recapitulate many of both the narrative elements, the narratological yeah. elements of Top Gun and the production elements, too. It feels a lot like Top Gun 1.5. Yeah. Though, well, who would ever make a sequel to Top Gun? <laughs> that would be crazy. I think All the Right Moves had a lot of that, too. There are elements of it, yeah, yeah consistently throughout. Th- these four films are really the, I think, focal point of this kind of energy. And then we start to deliberately break with that. Mm-hmm. Though, yeah, you can absolutely argue that all of those elements are present throughout the Mission Impossible franchise, which yeah. we won't even get to for another decade. <laughs> Tell me about your history with Top Gun. Uh, Top Gun, yeah. I think I shared this before in our uh, like point one episode or whatever it is, our zero episode, yeah. Um, I watched Top Gun when I was 16 because my boyfriend insisted. And he, <laughs> at the time, was wanting to go into the day. We wanted to be a fighter pilot. Ended up getting way too tall, way too fast. But I watched it at his house, on the couch, all snuggled up. My heart beating really fast. And because was, of the film or because of your boyfriend at the time? Mostly my boyfriend at the time. Okay. Yeah. I had already been in love with him for like a year and a half. So by the time we Aww. finally got together, I was just 
completely smitten. So, yeah, uh, I remember what I was wearing even in my little butterfly clips in my hair because this was, what, 98, 99? Would probably. have been around there, yeah. yeah. 99, probably, 99, 2000. Yeah, 98, I was in love with them, but we weren't together until <laughs> a little bit later. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I was at his house. We were curled up on the couch. We watched the whole thing start to finish, and I remember just – really loving it like thinking it was a lot of fun we i also had to watch enter the dragon which i did not like <laughs> yeah no that's a very different kind of energy for sure <laughs> yes but this one was really good um it's just fun it's just a fun movie yeah. and i've always liked those like the fun action movies the like independence days and like the big bombastic blow everything up uh armageddon is another one yeah like, i just i like them I this don't know. is definitely a forerunner of exactly that kind of Roland yeah. Emmerich, Dean Devlin kind of mid-90s blockbuster action movie. Blockbusters, yeah. Not least of all because it combines the elements that made the Roland Emmerich films so successful, which are a few very large and explosive set pieces and then a lot of scenes of people talking. Yeah. A lot of very chill dialogue scenes. Yes. Which are, if anything, maybe a little cinematically inert. Maybe a little bit, yeah. But I'm glad because I'm, I'm one that I tend to check out a little bit during the big action sequences. That's why I got lost like halfway through the Marvel movies because yeah. once the whole back half of the film is action, I just stop caring. I just, sure. I, I, it's not for me. So I like how Top Gun gives us all of these quieter moments. Those are my favorite moments. Like mm -hmm. I love being up in the air with the pilots, but I often am feeling a little bit disoriented, which I think part of that is on purpose. And that's part of the cinematography is there to make you feel that disorientation. Partly. Yeah. And yeah. Partly that's just a product of the way this lunatic film was shot. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. For me, Top Gun was my introduction to Tom Cruise. It was the first mm. Tom Cruise film that I had ever seen. And I saw it, gosh, almost a full decade before you. I am not that much older no. than you. But I saw this when I was very young. I was maybe 10 years old. I remember it was probably January of 1988. I had just moved to RAF Lukers in Fife, just south of Dundee in Scotland, because my stepfather was in the Air Force. Uh -huh. And I met my friend Darren, who was American. <laughs> whose dad was a U.S. pilot, a U.S. naval pilot, and who had gone to Top Gun, who oh had a, a certificate on his wall at the bottom of his stairs in his house that, that was like his graduation certificate so from, cool. from Miramar. Uh, so I was introduced to that film almost as a rite of passage. Yeah. And it was just immediately my favorite film for like two years, maybe. That's this awesome. and Ghostbusters, I would watch <laughs> over and over. I hadn't even really discovered Back to the Future yet. I hadn't mm. even really like locked into some of the other films that would define my my early teen years. Yeah. But yeah, Top Gun was there for me the whole way. Wow, that's kind of surprising for 10. It feels a bit mature. It's just so action-y though. And yeah. it's so fast. The pace is so rapid. It is crazy that we were talking about this film the week after talking about Legend. It is crazy, <laughs> as we said last week. This film is released four weeks after Legend in the US. And I cannot imagine... Two more four opposed weeks. films no. in Tom Cruise's filmography. Legend is so slow and deliberate mm. and, and just lets you soak in its atmosphere and its tonality for its entire running yeah. time. This film, it never gives you a second. It's it never a gives you a moment. Ride. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. We're going to get into it. There's a lot to discuss. And obviously this is not an uncomplicated film. Obviously this is not an uncontroversial film. Sure. We're going to have a ton to discuss, but we are going to start with the trailer game. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and I'm so glad it's your turn. <laughs> I feel like I should have practiced this and I didn't at all. Okay. Not that we're supposed to practice practice, but you know, I like to at least have an idea going in. To keep with the spirit of Tony Scott's editing, I suggest mm. that you only use monosyllabic words and no sentences of more than four words at a time. <laughs> I think that's how we'll, that's how we'll get through this. Are you ready? Sure, sure. Let's go.
I feel the need, the need for speed. It's the 80s, y'all. The planes are fast. The motorcycles are faster somehow. The girls are hot. The men are even hotter. They're so sweaty. They're so sweaty. Pete Maverick Mitchell lands on Miramar to go to Top Gun, ready to prove that his daddy issues are a thing of the past. His best friend Goose, that doctor from ER, Kelly McGillis, white shirt, black stockings, that's all you need to know. Except she's also an astrophysicist, so suck it. <laughs> Tom Skerritt as Zaddy, Navy has the best uniforms, fight me. Val Kilmer as Pete Mitchell's new crush. Somehow Tim Robbins is here as we take to the skies to duke it out and also to the sand for a very sweaty volleyball match. This summer, Tom Cruise is on a highway to the danger zone in Top Gun. Nice. Thank you. I forgot about Meg Ryan. She's also terrific. Oh. I'm so sorry. That's all right. She could be the beat after the beat, right? You have the logo and then the trailer goes quiet and then one more thing yeah, comes up. Yeah, it just comes up. Yeah, just slowly slides into Boom. focus. Yeah. <laughs> also Meg Ryan. Is Meg Ryan the best thing in this film? Oh, I don't know about the best. Meg Ryan and Anthony Edwards together Way are up there. so fantastic. Yeah. Hearts are breaking all over the world uh, tonight. Her delivery. Ah. I'm crazy she's about Meg Ryan beautiful. in this film. Yeah, yeah. I love that plaid dress she's wearing, too. The strapless when she first comes on screen. It's so much. It's almost Fantastic. too much. Almost. No, the, Everything about her performance, almost too much. Mm. But just, I think, mediated beautifully. Yeah. It's she's a big really movie. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah it is. Great. Let's get into it, then, yeah. with our deep, deep background on Top Gun. Top Gun has its origins in an article written for California Magazine in May of 1983. Written by Israeli author and UCLA grad Ehud Yone, it begins, quote, At Mach 2 and 40,000 feet over California, it's always high noon. The article follows Lieutenants Alex Yogi Hanarakis and Dave Possum Cully. I apologize in advance for pronunciation issues there. They are a flight team piloting a Grumman F-14 Tomcat out of the Naval Air Station Miramar, just a few miles north of San Diego, California. One team out of 12 in their squadron, their squadron one of 12, based at Miramar, in the support of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. The article is fantastic. Really? Yone writes with this, this Hemingway-esque, this punchy clarity that it just can't help but be compelling. I've got an extended quote that I'm just going to indulge Please, in. I hope yeah, you don't mind. I want to hear it. Quote, it is the Wednesday night happy hour, and the small, noisy room is packed with pumped-up fighter jocks. There is a lively trade at the bar, mostly in light beer, but out of this crowd of 50 or so men, no more than three are looking at the nearly nude dancers. With raw sacks waving right in front of their eyes, these supremely healthy young males are standing around in twos and threes and talking about the hop. You don't even have to listen to catch on. Just watch their hands tracing loops and rolls and aerial ambushes with the grace of a ballerina's. Wow. A scene directly from the film, yeah. basically. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you can see how immediately attractive this article would be to movie producers. Oh, yeah. Because we're going to move on from Yone at this point, it's worth noting that after a long and productive career, he retired to his olive farm in Israel. He died in 2012 at the age of 71. Mm. Later, his family would somewhat dubiously sue Paramount for copyright claims connected to the production of Top Gun Maverick, but we will circle back Ooh, around to that okay. <laughs> much, much later in our series. The article entitled Top Guns, which was the original cool. working title for the movie for a long time, in fact, is bought for adaptation by Paramount producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. 
Simpson was born in 1943 in Seattle and grew up in Alaska. Brookheimer was born the same year in Michigan and grew up in Arizona. So there's a pleasing reflective symmetry Mm. in their origin stories. They both end up working in marketing for a while, including Simpson's work promoting the first international erotic film festival in San Francisco in 1971. They both get into the movie industry and meet in the early 70s. Brookheimer begins producing and works on a number of films, including American Gigolo. Simpson writes the movie Cannonball and is promoted to vice president in charge of production in 1977 and president of Paramount in 1981 before being fired from that position for passing out during a board meeting due to a massive amount of cocaine. Oops. Addiction would dog Simpson's heels for the rest of his unfortunately foreshortened life. Brookheimer and Simpson find themselves working on Flashdance, and they begin a partnership that will last almost 15 years. They refer to themselves as Mr. Outside and Mr. Inside, respectively, because of their connections to the actual production machinery of Mm. Hollywood. This is Brookheimer, Mr. Outside, and the boardrooms of the industry where the money lives. That's Simpson. Mr. Inside. Uh. They are, between the two of them, probably more definitive of 1980s and 1990s cinema than anyone you can think of. They are a producing powerhouse at Paramount. So they're on the set of Flashdance when they read the original article about Top Gun. They finish up Flashdance, they develop Top Gun over the course of two years, during which time they also casually produce Beverly Hills Cop and the erotic thriller mostly forgotten by the passage of time, Thief of Hearts. Hmm. During this time in the early development of the script, they get the Navy on board because they realize that they will have to have naval support in Mm -hmm. order to produce this film. Definitely. And they are paired with their technical advisor, a former naval pilot himself. He is the inspiration for Tom Skerritt's character in the film. He even appears in the film in a brief cameo. His real life call sign is Viper. His real life name is Pete Pettigrew. This is not (gasps) a joke. Peter (laughs) Pettigrew. That's funny. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It's crazy. I love that they used Viper's call sign, though. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Yeah. What an Most call signs in real life are much dopier than the very cool call <laughs> signs that people get Merlin in the movie. is pretty dopey. Merlin's a little dopey, but appropriate for Tim Robbins, I think. Yeah. Which is your favorite call sign? Let's do this, because I don't think we'll get a chance to talk Ooh. about them too much as we're moving through the film. Uh, Which is your favorite of the call signs that we're given? I mean, Maverick Goose is, the is best very one. stupid. Goose is stupid. Yeah, Maverick is the best one. And then I think I like Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood's I like very Hollywood cool, also. although a yeah. little Great British Bake Off now, unfortunately. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> the budget is fixed at $13.5 million. Simpson and Brookheimer approach David Cronenberg to direct, but he turns down the offer, as does John Carpenter, who had just released Christine and is on post-production for Starman. Matthew Modine is the first choice for Maverick, but he too turns down the project, citing his personal opposition to American military propaganda. Yeah. At this point, Simpson and Brookheimer have hired writing partners Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., who are working screenwriters with a string of unproduced scripts behind them. The first draft of this script, which they take six months to write, is not well received by the producers, most notably because their protagonist, Maverick, comes off, quote, as an asshole. But they still believe in the power of the pitch, so Cash and Epps write a second draft, taking another two months, but it doesn't really move the needle. Most notably, Brookheimer and Simpson aren't impressed with the love interest character, a classic 1980s fitness instructor who works with the pilots. So the script is in a bad spot, but we'll come back to that in a little while. Early in 1984, Simpson and Brookheimer are on a rafting trip with their buddy, 
commercial director Tony Scott. <laughs> they get along great. Tony likes the idea of casting that young man who made such a splash in Risky Business the year before. Turns out that kid happens to be in London shooting Legend with Tony Scott's brother Ridley. And Tony's convinced that Ridley can help persuade Cruz mm. to sign on to this film. Let's talk a little bit about Tony Scott. Yeah. He is, of course, the younger brother of Ridley, who we discussed last week. He's seven years younger, in fact. Like his brother, he attends West Hartlepool College of Art. Unlike his brother, he is unsuccessful initially in his application to the Royal Academy of Art, instead continuing his studies in Leeds with a focus on fine art and painting. Hmm. Burdened with student debt, because that's what happens to people who pursue fine art in college, he joins his brother's commercial production company and finds that he has a real talent for it. After agreeing to do it for a year, after which time Ridley had promised him he'd be able to buy a Ferrari, he ends up making commercials for 15 years. Wow. He does, in fact, buy a Ferrari. (laughs) I'll bet. (laughs) Commercial work pays. Right. But by the early 80s, Ridley's film career is taking off and Tony wants his shot. He's initially interested in adapting Anne Rice's novel Interview with the Vampire. A crazy idea, would never work. But was instead hired by MGM to make The Hunger, starring David Bowie, Susan Sarandon, and Catherine Deneuve. I think that movie rocks. I have not seen that movie. I just think it's cool. Is it good? No, it's not good. But it's a vibe. It's awesome. Is it, is it ever so stylish? It. It's very stylish, very stylish. You can tell right away that there's like a name on it and that that name is a Scott. Like you can just tell. (laughs) And Susan Sarandon's just incredible. Catherine Deneuve, they have sex and it's very hot. So it was the the reason I even found out about this movie is Is that the celluloid closet. Yes. Which I watched for a gender and media class when I was in school. And uh, it was this just really interesting documentary about the depictions of queer life in Hollywood, especially mm. before and after the Hayes Code, sure. had so many different actors talking about it. And uh, one of the women was talking about how it used to be in order to find anything that was queer or queer coded, it was always somehow mixed into some kind of fantasy because yeah. that's like the only way that they could do it and get away with it. And so sure. Like, oh my God, it's this great depiction of two women getting together for the first time and it's so hot and it's vampires, but you can get past that. I love to hear Susan Sarandon talk about the work because she's so influential Mm. in the movies that she makes. And she has no qualms about talking about that. She'll just say, the director wanted to do it this way. I thought that was a bad idea. I told him to do it this way. And so we did. I'm like, wow. Okay. And who is going to argue with Susan Sarandon? Exactly. So her whole thing was that they wanted her character to get super drunk before Mm -hmm. she actually went to bed with Catherine Deneuve. And she says in, in the celluloid closet, listen. You don't have to be drunk to want to bed Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> <laughs> the Hunger, though, is a critical flop. It yeah. basically makes back its production budget, but Scott goes back to commercials for a couple of years until he finds himself on that aforementioned raft with Simpson and Brookheimer, and they bring up a commercial that Scott had just directed called Nothing on Earth Comes Close, in which a Saab 900 Turbo... An ugly 1980s car. Very ugly. Is juxtaposed with a Saab 37 Viggen, a fighter jet. It's a cool commercial. It's basically Top it's Gun. It's basically Top Gun. It's basically <laughs> a lot of Top Gun in like 30 seconds. It's you can crazy. see exactly where they saw it. And we're yeah. like, yeah, this guy. Knowing that their budget was relatively modest and that the physical demands of shooting inside F-14 Tomcats would require the kind of practiced and practical directorial eye that you know, a commercial director could bring to the project, uh they hire Scott. To that end, they also hire Jeffrey Kimball as a cinematographer who had worked extensively in commercials and had worked with Scott before. Kimball was 
resourceful. He was inventive. He was known for, quote, sometimes risky cinematography. Mm-hmm. He would overextend himself in order to get these shots, which this production had to do. Yeah. Kimball shoots on the ground and on the aircraft carrier with two cameras, only two because of time constraints more than anything else. He has a fixed camera usually and a steady cam mount that he also uses, which is incredibly difficult when you're moving around I can't these very claustrophobic spaces, yeah. particularly in the aircraft carrier. Shooting the planes themselves, however, was a much more difficult proposition. The F-14 Tomcat costs $36 million. It can climb 30,000 feet in one minute. It can fly faster than twice the speed of sound. Wow. And it carries seven tons of weaponry. Safety and security were vital. Yeah. The producers worked with the Navy and with Grumman, who builds the F-14, to develop external camera mounts, which could withstand the incredible pressures of flight. And two in-cockpit mounts, which used Super 35 film. They couldn't use anamorphic lenses or higher-grade film because they were just too heavy. And when you are experiencing the kinds of G-forces that these planes experience, you don't want your lens suddenly weighing 120 pounds. That would be bad news for your camera mount. Each camera could only carry enough physical, actual, practical film for two minutes of footage. Wow. They could only be switched out on the ground. Oh, my God. For the action sequences, pilots were given lists of maneuvers that were needed, and they would go out to perform those very specific maneuvers over and over and over again, shooting often in two or three second bursts over the course of an hour or an hour and a half. If you're interested in the specific details, there's an article at American Cinematographer that goes into incredible technical depth on the kinds of lenses used, the reasons against using those heavier anamorphic lenses, and all the other technical details. You can find that in the show notes. They end up shooting, in the end, over 200 hours of aerial footage. The actual That's so much. 200 <laughs> so much. hours? 200 hours. Oh, my God. So you're thinking, you know, six external camera mounts, two internal camera mounts. So you're shooting. Sure. So it's okay. All right. All right. But still, that adds up to 16 minutes of footage per plane per flight. Wow. It's a lot. Wow. And someone's <laughs> got to watch all of that. Someone's got to watch all of it, and you've got to pay for the gas, which comes to the grand total Holy of stars. around $4,500. And this is in 1985 money, $4,500 yeah. per hour oh that one of those planes God. is in the air. The actual in-flight cinematography is supplemented by miniatures uh, shot by visual effects supervisor Gary Gutierrez, who builds 40 different plane models ranging from 20 inches to 9 feet in size. He then takes them out to an open patch of land in Oakland, California, and just fires missiles at them, scale missiles at them, and watches (laughs) them explode. The model work is almost entirely, I think, seamless. I was going to say... Like, now that you say that there were models, of course there were, but it never occurred to me while I was watching it. There's only a few times that I think the model work is very conspicuous when Mm -hmm. the canopy blows after the flat spin right before, you know, goose dies. Oh, yeah. That canopy blowing is obviously a model shot and needs to be because you would not blow the canopy off of an F-14 without good reason. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it maybe looks a little conspicuous there, but... I I didn't notice because that was such a tense scene. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah. So Scott is on board. Kimball is on board. The Navy, crucially, is on board. Now we just need two things, a cast and a script. Mm. Let's do the cast first, shall we? Because this cast, I have to be brief running through this cast or we would be here for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) Kelly McGillis is born in 1957 in Newport Beach, California. She attends the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, then drops out to move to New York City to attend Juilliard. 
She's married for two years to writer Boyd Black, but the two divorce before she graduates in 1983 and is cast in Reuben Reuben, an adaptation of the 1964 DeVries novel of the same name. Her breakout, though, comes in 1985 when she stars in the Peter Weir drama Witness alongside right. Harrison Ford, for which she is nominated for a Golden Globe and nominated by the British Academy of Film and Television. She is the immediate favorite for Top Gun. Wow. No one else is auditioned. Weirdly, Demi Moore starts claiming in the mid-2000s that she auditioned for Top Gun, but I couldn't find any actual primary sources verifying that fact. (laughs) I'm I'm comfortable believing that it's true. But yeah, no one at the time was talking about Demi Moore. That's interesting. Everyone was talking about Kelly McGillis. She was in from the jump. After Top Gun, she has a decent, if not outstanding, career. She works consistently in film and television through the 90s. She's married to restaurateur Fred Tillman from 1989 to 2002. She is notably cast in the original run of The L Word on Showtime in 2007. Oh. She comes out as a lesbian in 2009. She currently lives in North Carolina and teaches acting in Asheville. That's awesome. Pretty great. Wow. Not a bad life as not these things go. Not a bad life as these things go. Joining Kelly McGillis in the cast is Val Kilmer, who was born December 31st, 1959 in Los Angeles. Further proof, if proof were needed, that this industry is the smallest in the world. He goes to Chatsworth High School in the San Fernando Valley with, strangely, Kevin Spacey. Like Spacey and like McGillis, he goes on to Juilliard in New York. He begins working in the theater in 1981 while also auditioning for movie roles from time to time. He is offered the role of Pony Boy in The Outsiders. That is insane. But turns it down because he's on stage at the time with Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon, and Jackie Earl Haley. What? The smallest industry. Yeah. His first movie role comes in 1984's Top Secret, an Abram Zucker Abrams parody. I'm a big fan of Abram Zucker Abrams, but that is not one of their best. (laughs) He is then cast as the lead in Real Genius in 1985. He turns down the Kyle MacLachlan role in Blue Velvet to play Iceman in Top Gun. From there, he goes on to play Mad Martigan in Willow, which is, I think, a genuinely brilliant performance, during which time he meets and marries the very, very beautiful Joanna Wally. He plays Jim Morrison in Oliver Stone's The Doors. He plays Doc Holliday Mm -hmm. in Tombstone. He plays, you know, Batman in the worst Batman film. Bobby, I'm Batman. 1995, (laughs) alongside Batman. This is the crazy thing about his career. The same year as Batman, he is in Heat. And then his career starts to slip. We get The Island of Dr. Moreau. We get The Ghost in the Darkness. We get the infamous disaster that is Red Planet in 2000, a very large commercial and critical failure. He works again with Oliver Stone on Alexander in 2004, Mm. then with Shane Black on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2005. You can't argue with the work that the man has done. He is occasionally presented as being extremely difficult, particularly in Tombstone and the Island of Dr. Moreau. His co-stars do not have kind things to say about him. But there Mm. are also directors out there and co-stars who speak very highly of him and of his professionalism. It seems to be the case that he has no time for silliness on set, Mm. that he is a as you might expect coming out of a New York theater tradition, he is very craft-oriented and doesn't really go in for, like, movie star stuff. Sure. Okay. One of his co-stars on Tombstone, when asked about how Val Kilmer was in real life, said, I don't know. I never met him. I met Doc Holliday a lot of times, though. <laughs> Roger Ebert, appearing here in this podcast for the I second time, know the time. <laughs> said, quote, if there's an award for the most unsung leading man of his generation, Kilmer should get it. Wow. 
Unfortunately, Kilmer underwent treatment for throat cancer in 2015, which resulted in two tracheotomies and chemotherapy. He has, thankfully, been cancer-free since 2017, but at the cost of his voice, which was digitally augmented, though not as the producers take pains to establish, not recreated using AI, just digitally mm -hmm, augmented mm -hmm. for Top Gun Maverick in 2022. Let's move on to Anthony Edwards, shall we? Yes. Born in 62 in Santa Barbara, he receives a scholarship to RADA, to the Royal Academy for the Dramatic Arts in London. He then studies theater at the University of Southern California. He drops out at the age of 19 because he's just being offered too much work to turn wow. down. yeah. His first role as an adult actor is in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's in Revenge of the Nerds. He's in The Client. He's in Fincher's Zodiac in a small role. But really, really, he's Dr. Mark Green. Yeah, definitely. 180 episodes of ER. He is still, I think today, and we've talked on this podcast before about our love of Grey's Anatomy. He is a TV doctor to me. Yeah. When I think TV doctor, it's yeah, Mark Yeah, he's Green. right there, sure. He's so fantastic. Is the heart of... Basically, every storyline that makes ER special yes. in the 90s yeah, has the amazing, tragic romance with Dr. Elizabeth Corday. Mm -hmm. Just so crazy about him in that show. Beautiful. Yeah. It's excellent work. You revisited ER. I did. Uh, when I was pregnant with my third, yes, I watched a lot of ER in like my last trimester. So it all kind of blurs together, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I don't think I got to the very end either. At some point, well, my baby was born and then I was too busy. And then I suddenly think. you don't have time for <laughs> exactly. fictional to, Chicago doctors right. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, yes, I do remember Dr. Elizabeth Corday, of course. I remember Dr. Mark Green, uh, the incredible episode, of course. I would remember where he loses the pregnant woman who comes in in yes. childbirth. That, of course, <laughs> at the time was like, oh. Very, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very powerful, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. And just such a terrific episode of television, though, really. There are so many terrific episodes the best one. in that run that yeah. just are, are great in such disparate ways, mm. too. And we haven't even mentioned, you know, the Clooney of it all with yes, ER, where Clooney, he is so twinkly and charming and, and lovely. It might be worth putting together a greatest hits playlist of ER and going maybe, back to watch maybe, maybe 20 yeah. episodes cherry picked from that run. Could be. Last year, again, the world is small. Last year, Anthony Edwards married actor and singer Mayor Winningham, who weirdly dated Val Kilmer in high school and was co-valedictorian of her graduating class with Kevin Spacey. Weird. Should we talk about Tom Skerritt? Yes. Oh, my God. I love Tom Skerritt. Tom Skerritt was born in 1933 in Detroit. He graduates also from UCLA. He is famous for MASH, of course, for Alien, of course. But for me, it's Top Gun. And yeah. it's Space Camp, which is a film that I like. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it's Contact. It's yeah. the Robert Zemeckis adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel, Contact. That film, I, uh, that film is definitely in my top ten of all time. It's, it's so special. It's a terrific special. one. Yeah. We should also mention Michael Ironside and James Tolkien, both character actor badasses. Uh, Ironside might be best known for, for Total Recall or probably for Starship Troopers, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers in 1997. Tolkien has had a fascinating career, but will always be Principal Strickland from Back to the Future. Yes, sure. One of those two men is very good in this film. And the other, I'm sad to say, is James Tolkien, who uh. is really kind of giving a pro forma first pass performance. His dialogue is very poor throughout. Yeah. He is given nothing but exposition and reaction. Yes. There's almost nothing of character or of substance in his, in his dialogue. Yeah. But he also doesn't bring anything to that role that we haven't seen before, I feel like. I think that's fair, yeah, and true. It doesn't bother me, I don't think, because we don't need it. We don't need him to do anything more than that. 
but well, and I, nothing can bother you in this film because you don't have time you for don't it to have bother time you. To be bothered. <laughs> like, why are you it's, giving me this exposition for the third time? Really, bald the man. secret genius of this yes. film. <laughs> we should mention uh, John Stockwell and Rick Rosovich, which we mentioned back in our episode oh. on losing it. Both of whom recur here, one very briefly as Cougar at the beginning. And then as the awful, awful, odious Slider, who has the worst nickname. Yeah. That's the worst codename out of the bunch, I think. (laughs) I would rather be a goose or a merlin than a Slider. (laughs) And then we've got the wonderful Meg Ryan, born in 1961 Mm. in Connecticut. And she is just the best. She is just the best. She studies journalism at the University of Connecticut and then at NYU. She's just casually acting in commercials and in the soap opera As the World Turns to make a little extra money while she is studying. Wow. But she is so successful that she drops out of college one semester before graduating oh my God. to become a full-time actor. Obviously, her role in Top Gun is minor but memorable. Yes. She's immediately arresting, I think, Yeah, she's screen. really the heart of it, I think. Yeah, and it's no surprise that she goes on from here to have the career that she has. Inner Space in 1987, which is where she meets Dennis Quaid, to whom she would be married for a decade. She does... When Harry Met Sally in 89, Joe versus the Volcano in 90, Sleepless in Seattle in 93, French Kiss, yes, I will include it in her run of great films in 1995, (laughs) even though no one else would, and You've Got Mail in 1998. It's difficult to think of a more iconic romantic comedy lead of the 1990s. She's the rom-com heroine. She's it, And does it all in When Harry Met Sally. Yes. Just is right there from the jump in that version of her her on-screen persona. So that's our cast. We still don't have a script. Cruz, by this point, has also signed on. He's leveraging his newfound celebrity to insist on input in the screenwriting process because he, like Brookheimer and Simpson, thinks the first draft is weak. Okay. The producers take the draft and hand it off to Chip Prozer, who is a working screenwriter with a background in aviation. He's the one who fills the script with all of this precise and authentic technical language, making the pilots feel more capable, more professional, more realistic. Prosser also introduces the idea of a new female character, Charlie, inspired by the real-life Navy consultant Christine Fox, who would later serve as Deputy Secretary of Defense under President Barack Obama and would be the highest-ranking woman to ever work at the Pentagon. Hot. She is the real-life inspiration for Charlie. Charlie is at first a Navy officer, but she will later be revised into a civilian liaison figure that we'll see in the film because the Navy, weirdly, was very strict about its fraternization policy. Yeah, I was going to say, you couldn't have them getting together like that. (laughs) That's why we get that voiceover from Michael Ironsides with that, uh, she is a civilian, you do not have to salute her, but you can definitely sleep with her if you are both so inclined. (laughs) The script is slowly, slowly taking shape, but it is still not good enough for production. Cruz, in particular, is getting cold feet. In an interview with Rolling Stone in 1986, he said, quote, I liked it, but it needed a lot of work. I was worried. The producers praised Cruz's involvement in the script process. They noted that between spending time at Miramar and hanging out with the pilots to get a sense of their world and to work on the character of Maverick, mm-hmm. he would then drive to Don Simpson's house and spend six or eight hours talking about the story, acting out drafts, patching the script, though... Part of that work ethic, we might speculate, is connected to the fact that his relationship with Rebecca de Mornay, which had somehow survived all the time that he spent in London shooting Legend, had now come to an unceremonious end. Mm. In any case, the problem was that the band-aids applied to the script weren't enough. There was magic here, there was passion here, but it wasn't enough. By mid-April, six weeks out from the start of principal photography, Cruz was ready to walk. Whoa. Now... Let me introduce you to my new personal hero. I'm so excited. Warren Scarron. 
I'm absolutely indebted, I should note, to the excellent book Rewrite Man by the film historian and academic Alison Makor, uh, in which she tells the story of, of Warren Scarron, this unsung hero of Hollywood. She tells the story with compassion and with care and an endless attention to detail. It is a fantastic book. Very highly recommended. The, the link is in the show notes. Warren Scarron is born in 1946 in Minnesota. He graduates from Rice in Texas in 1969, at which point he moves to Austin and begins working for the Texas Department of Health and Human Services. The following year, he is hired to head up the newly formed Texas Film Commission, which is created to attract film production to the great state of Texas. He's pretty successful. He is responsible for getting the film The Getaway shot in Texas in 1972, one of the first films to be entirely shot in Texas. He's also pivotal behind the distribution of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, sure. He says, though this is somewhat unverified, he says that he comes up with the name, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> At this time, he's fascinated by screenwriting, so he starts to develop his own scripts. He is hired to write a script, a spec script, about the uh, Nepalese Gurkhas. So he does. He entitles it Of East and West. And though it's never produced, it starts to get some attention. People are interested in this talented new writer. On April 24th, 1984, Scarron is contacted by Simpson and Bruckheimer. Talking on the phone, they want him to fly from Austin out to L.A. to work on the script. He refuses. He doesn't like L.A. He finds the noise to be distracting. Scarron mm. identifies that the proser draft is missing two things, vulnerability for Maverick and dimensionality for Charlie. Scarron goes back to the early drafts. He's combing through all four versions to find what was good, what was bad, what needed to be worked on. The next day, he has another call with Bruckheimer who is impressed with his grasp of the story and his willingness to work with both Scott and Cruz. Mindful of the pressure that they are under, Simpson tells Scarron, quote, This is where we sit. I'm going to on the phone say this without speaking to my partner. We want you to do this. Quite simply, you're our choice. Hmm. Scarron writes an outline for the new draft in a day wow. and has another extended phone call with the producers. He writes a second full outline the next day, preserving as much of the story structure and the technical language as possible because anything new has to be cleared with the Navy, which is a slow process. Yeah. He presents the second outline over the phone to Simpson, Bruckheimer, Scott, and Cruz. They are thrilled with the direction wow. that he's going and Scarron is immediately contracted to write a full draft and a polish in three weeks. Whoa. That is no time at all. That is no time. That is so little time yeah. to redraft even an existing script. Even, yeah. Never mind one that needs this much work. So, three weeks. He gets it done in five days. Shut up. He would have gotten it done in four days, except he is distracted by a two and a half hour phone call from Scott and Cruz, <laughs> making sure that they are all on the same page together. Yeah. Crucially, Simpson and Bruckheimer not involved in that call. Uh-huh. But spending 13 hours a day typing is not for the faint of heart. To quote Megan from her wonderful book, quote, Toward the end, Scarron was wearing a patch over his left eye to compensate for its sudden inability to focus. His hands, which had become calloused from round-the-clock typing, were bandaged in bubble wrap. Later, while reflecting on the grueling experience, Scarron reminded himself to always take two weeks minimum to rewrite a first draft. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The producers love... My bubble wrap? I have no idea. That's horrible. If you've never spent any time typing on a mechanical yeah, keyboard. Yeah, I haven't. They are so taxing. It is so difficult. It's so different from typing yeah, on, on sure. a new digital keyboard, you know. So the calluses, I can completely understand. <laughs> at least the bubble wrap, not so much. But the calluses, <laughs> yes. The producers absolutely love the revision. 
In a call on May 8th, Bruckheimer says, quote, excellent job. Excellent. I mean, even Tony, who we thought wasn't going to like it because he doesn't have the kind of heart that we want this picture to have, <gasps> loves it. Whoa. Which, casual slam. Whoa. By the way, <laughs> somewhat mitigated. <laughs> Somewhat mitigated by the fact that Scott does call to apologize for not being impressed with the initial outline, <laughs> but for also loving this draft. Scarron flies out to LA to meet everyone involved for the first time and to discuss the polish that the script needs. There's still a process here. After a six-hour meeting, he flies back to Austin and gets to work. Mostly, the polish is just a tightening of the ending and a return to the original script to incorporate a couple of lines that the producers liked but which had been lost in the shuffle. Sure. Most notably, the line about having a need for speed. Oh, yeah. That's a fun line. It's a fun line. Yeah. By May 20th, casting had been confirmed, including Kilmer and McGillis. By May 30th, Scarron has delivered two further drafts, each focused on making Maverick more likable and strengthening the romance. Good. By the middle of June, he's in L.A. for rehearsals and continues revising the script on set. He submits 59 pages of revision the day before principal photography begins. He revises another 60 pages of script during the shoot. To do all of this while navigating the studio, navigating the producers, navigating the director, navigating the star, all while being on the brink of having the production fall apart completely. Yeah. It is a phenomenal creative achievement. Wow. I mention this because... A glance at Wikipedia or IMDb or indeed the opening credits of the film will tell you that the screenwriters of this movie are Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. (sighs) Paramount submitted proposed credits to the WGA while the film was still in production, which is a little bit unusual, but not actually sketchy. Mm -hmm. The WGA came back and said, yep, Cash and Epps have the written by credits and a suggested by credit is going to go to Yone for the original article. Scarron understandably protested. Yeah. And the WG Arbitration Committee, which exists to stop things like this from happening, told each of the four writers, including Prozer, that they had 24 hours to lay out their contributions to the script and what they thought the right credits should be. Scarron is still working on the production, still actively revising after the producers watch the dailies. He writes his response, suggesting that he just wants equal credit. He just wants equal credit with cash and apps. The exact back and forth is exhausting, but the end result is this. The three anonymous members of the WGA who formed the arbitration committee decide through two rounds of appeals that Cash and Epps would remain the sole credited writers. Damn. At the very least, if nothing else, this costs Scarron hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, my God. Interestingly, Paramount, who are obviously impressed by Scarron's right. work and don't really care what the WGA has to say on the subject, they want to maintain a relationship with him. So they give him, without having to, a producer title on the film, a compromise he did not ask for and did not pursue. Okay. Because of the terms of this contract and because of a small profit-sharing clause contained Uh within it, and because Top Gun turns out to be a massive success, Scarron makes a little over a third of a million dollars from Top Gun. Mike Simpson, who for a long, long time was Scarron's agent and no relation to Don Simpson, the producer, tells Scarron, quote, The Guild may choose to unjustly suppress your screen credit, but this town knows that you made two movies happen. That's infinitely more important for the long run than the credit or the money. Wow. He is referring here to Top Gun. And while Scarron is doing all of this, he's also helping rewrite uh, an erotic drama called Fire with Fire starring Virginia Madsen, which really has left no trace on Hollywood (laughs) at all. But that's the way these things go sometimes. So Scarron's reputation is intact, even though Top Gun does not bear his name. His career is just getting started. He writes Beverly Hills Cop 2 with Larry Ferguson in 1987. He writes 
Beetlejuice with Michael McDowell in wow. 1988. He writes Batman with Sam Hamm in 1989. He works with Cruz again, developing Cruz's five-page idea that will eventually become Days of Thunder. He is a force in the industry. Wow. And then, in December of 1990, at the age of 44, with no warning to his friends and peers in the industry, Warren Scarron succumbs to osteosarcoma and dies. <gasps> oh, that's awful. Tom Cruise and Michael Douglas both have letters read at Scarron's funeral. Tim Burton attends the funeral but does not speak. Who knows what that kind of talent, what that kind of work ethic, what that kind of ability to negotiate Hollywood mm -hmm. could have accomplished if he had lived for another 30, 40, 50 years. Wow. There's a powerful sense in which he was just getting started mm. and was taken from us all too soon. Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. would work on The Secret of My Success in 1987, Turner and Hooch in 89, Warren Beatty's 1990 Dick Tracy, which is oh, a film yeah. that I really like. Do not take any of my protests about Scarron's treatment here at the hands of the WGA to be censure of Jim Cash or Jack Epps Jr. Okay. I think I think uh, Dick Tracy is fantastic. And they would write Anaconda in 1997. Anaconda. <laughs> Jim Cash unfortunately passed away in the year 2000. Wow. We have just a little more production wrap up then. While shooting the sequence in the ocean after Maverick and Goose eject from their jet, mm -hmm. Cruz was pulled underwater because his parachute lines were tangled around his watch. After 40 seconds, he had not resurfaced, and petty officers John Butler and Daryl Silva leapt in to save him. They were later awarded Navy Commendation Medals for their efforts. Wow. Cruz was back at work within the hour. Wow. The man, the legend. That's cool. In August, the crew spends five days aboard the carrier that we see in the film. Did you notice the name of the carrier? Oh, I didn't. It's the USS Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That is a real carrier. It is. She is the first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier in the world. She is the only ship of her class. She was ordered in 1957 and commissioned in 1961. She is the naval tradition is that ships oh, use she, her yes. pronouns, which just shows mm -hmm. how progressive the Navy has been for years and years and years. <laughs> he said with only a slim measure of sarcasm. <laughs> she is gargantuan. She is 1,100 feet long. She is longer than three football fields laid end to oh end. Oh, my God. She weighs almost 100,000 tons. She has an active crew of 4,600 people. Holy smokes. Immediately after her commission, she is sent to Cuba as a part of the blockade uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. She is then transferred into the Pacific Theater, where she plays a major role in the Vietnam War. She is finally decommissioned in 2017. Wow. One more sad note, too. In September of 1985, after principal photography had been completed, aviator Art Scholl was killed while using a remote control camera to film second unit footage. Oh my he God. He had deliberately put his plane into a flat spin, as in the film, to get disorienting POV shots that were supposed to be Maverick's POV as yeah. the plane is in the flat spin. He loses control. He cannot recover from the spin, and he crashes into the water off San Diego. Oh my God. Neither the aircraft or Scholl's body were ever recovered. Wow, that's awful. Uh, a minor detail here, too, that even after principal photography has done, even after the film has basically been edited in its entirety, Brookheimer and Simpson are not enthusiastic about the rhythm of the romance. So they bring McGillis and Cruz back to shoot an additional scene, the scene in the elevator in the middle of the film. Oh, I like that scene. I like that scene, too. It was shot six months after principal photography. Kelly McGillis had cut and dyed her hair that's for another role. That's why she's in the hat. That's why she's in the hat. <laughs> She That's why she's in, in the cute, 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 hat. cute hat. Scott, great, great jacket. Right? <laughs> it's such a great jacket. Oh, yeah. 
Scott, Simpson, Bruckheimer, and Cruz will all work together on the aforementioned 1990 NASCAR drama Days of Thunder. So we're going to talk about the rest of their careers when we get to okay, that episode cool. of The Last Star in Hollywood, which will be our last episode of the year. It's going to be oh. uh, the 27th of December, right okay. before New Year. Cool. We'll talk about NASCAR racing and Days of Thunder, <laughs> I guess. What better time of year is there? Let's talk a little about the impact of the film, though. Mm. Top Gun is released on May 16th, 1986. It makes just over $8 million in a thousand theaters over its opening weekend. Reviews are mixed. Most reviews say that the film is enjoyable, but maybe insubstantial, that maybe it's a little Fair. arrogant, maybe it's a little a little swaggering, swaggering a little overconfident. Sure. Mm -hmm. Noted critic Pauline Kael yes. takes the film to task for its homosexual subtext. We will circle back around to homosexuality and Top Gun in just a little bit, but mm -hmm. that is an unpleasant review and is kind of consistent with some ongoing low-level, for want of a better word, homophobia mm. in the critical work of Pauline Kael. That's a shame. But something interesting happens. This So 8 million opening weekend, mixed reviews. No one's really like super enthused about it. But then something interesting happens. It just keeps making money. I can see why. There's a concept in Hollywood called the multiplier. Mm -hmm. Do you know this? No. It's basically... A way of comparing your box office take on your opening weekend to all the money that the film will make during its run. You make $10 million in your opening weekend. Your eventual box office is $40 million. You have a multiplier of four. It's a way of measuring okay. word of mouth. Okay. If your film has good word of mouth, lots of people will go see it in weeks two, three, four, or five. Yeah. And you will continue to make money. If your film has bad word of mouth... Your multiplier will be low yeah. because only people who go and see it on the opening weekend will go to see it. For modern movies, a multiplier of three or four is considered pretty solid. That means pretty good word of mouth. Let's take as an example the 2015 remake of Endless Love. It oh. made 13.3 million opening weekend and 23.4 million overall. That is a multiplier of 1.7. Sure. That's bad word of mouth yeah. is what happened there. It's not always the case that a low multiplier means bad word of mouth. There are special events there are special screenings there are films that focus on a particular time and place so maybe everyone who was going to see that film goes out the first week mm -hmm. it's not always a sign of a failure either it's just an indication of how the audience en masse is responding to your film a good example of that is ryan johnson's glass onion because okay. it has it has a multiplier of 1.6 which is extremely low but its appearance in theaters was i was gonna say an yeah. orchestrated awards play by netflix they were never intending that thing to stay around in theaters right. for a long time. And also, the modern trend toward explosive openings, record-breaking openings, and short theater runs is obviously a huge factor here. Yeah. Last year, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness had a multiplier of 2.1, a low multiplier. But it made $411 million domestic and almost a billion dollars worldwide. So sure. really, these numbers are, are soft at best. But things aren't what they used to be. In 1986, movies stuck around in theaters for longer. Yeah. Advertising campaigns weren't so focused on that first week push. A movie's reputation could build over time. Multipliers, in general, were a little higher. James Cameron's Aliens, for example, this same year, had a multiplier of 8.5, a Damn. huge hit. Ferris Bueller's Day Off had a multiplier of 11, an enormous yeah. hit, wow, especially sure. for a comedy. That thing just played and played and played. 
Top Gun had a multiplier of 21. Wow. $8.2 million opening weekend, $172 million by the time it leaves theaters in November. Amazing. Top Gun is still number six at the box office five months after release on the weekend of October 17th when Tom Cruise's next movie, The Color of Money, comes out. <laughs> That's awesome. It's the highest grossing movie of 1986. And we should remember, too, that ticket prices were much cheaper then. Of course. Yeah. $172 million of box office income is 46 million ticket sales. 46 million people wow. went to see Top Gun in five months. That's amazing. It is a great movie to see in theaters. You would have to think so, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's why we went to go see Maverick in theaters. We're like, yeah. if we're going to go back exactly. to theater after COVID, <laughs> this is the one you go for. Perhaps more importantly, even than that, in terms of its cultural legacy, Top Gun was one of the first movies to demonstrate the potential of the home VHS market. It oh, yeah. blew past every existing record in terms of sales. It sold 2.5 million copies on VHS in its first week. Wow. Sure. This remarkable accomplishment is only exceeded by the popularity of the film's soundtrack, which yeah. sold more than 9 million copies it's in the U.S. alone. It's a great soundtrack. I it's, wonder if that's something we can find on vinyl. I don't know. I, is that something we would want on vinyl? We need to talk a little about the soundtrack here. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. It has real high points. Mm, and it has mm -hmm. some real low points. Some real low points. I don't remember those right off the top of my head. I think Take My Breath Away is a bad song. Oh, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong, sir. As established on this podcast, <laughs> I have a lot of wrong opinions about music. It's okay. I like a lot of the soundtrack to this film. I love the score to this film. I think the score is just tremendous. The score is written by Harold Faltermeyer, who has a respectable career, like mm -hmm. cool working composer, decent number of credits, like certainly, you know, paid his bills through writing music. But it is a career that is overshadowed by two incredible high points. The first being the score for Top Gun. The second being the composition of Axel F for Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, Yeah, that's a great one. It is a great Everyone one. Everyone knows that. Uh, absolutely huge piece of music. Reimagined, most interestingly, I think, by The Crazy Frog. Do you remember that phenomenon? The Crazy Frog? No? Uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that crazy frog. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I remember that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> How lucky we are to forget the things that harm oh, us. Oh, God. <laughs> the axe forgets, the tree remembers. <laughs> the soundtrack is the highest selling soundtrack of 1986. Outselling competition like the Tangerine Dream Legend soundtrack, which is also yeah. released in 1986 and sells tremendously well. The oh. Labyrinth soundtrack from that same year. The soundtrack for David Lynch's Blue Velvet. And perhaps most surprisingly, the soundtrack for Transformers the movie, which I think is just that. You got the touch? You got the power song for 40 minutes? I don't know. I do know that the new Transformers movie soundtracks are actually awesome. Is it not all just Linkin Park? That's what I associate <laughs> with Michael Bay. I just think it's all going to sound sure. like, like 90s butt rock. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what I remember is the Steve Jablonski score. Oh, the score just, rather yeah. than, yes. Yeah, yes, the score okay. is just really cool. I, yeah, no, you're, that's fair. Yeah, that's good fair. for road trips. And you'll be thrilled to know, I'm sure, that the Academy was absolutely on your side. Top Gun received Academy Award nominations for film editing, of course. which I can't imagine it didn't deserve to win, sound, sound effects editing, sure. and won an Oscar for Best Original Song for Take My Breath Away. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't okay. mind being out of step about these things. <laughs> you know what I think it is? I think it's that in the film, they just keep playing like the first 16 bars. Dun, 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 and then it takes so dun, dun, long for dun, us to get to the song yeah. proper. That, that makes sense. It just kind of wears out its welcome by yeah. the time it does what it does. That's a fair criticism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the production story of Top Gun. Okay. We clearly need to talk about this film from a different perspective, from more of a like cultural criticism kind of perspective, because this is a film that has been widely derided by many people who I think have the very best of intentions. It is derided as being weird American military propaganda. It has mm-hmm. been derided as being weirdly hyper-masculine and, and toxically masculine. Which I think is, yeah, interesting. maybe separate interesting. those two arguments yeah. into two separate categories. There's the enduring question of its its actual textual homoeroticism mm-hmm. and its position in gay culture as a homosexual text, in particular the oh. 1980s. Uh-huh. It's just a complicated film in some ways. Yes. I was going to start with the American militarism of it Don't. all, which certainly it makes the Navy look fucking sexy, which... Is interesting. I definitely was someone who I think because of this movie and because, you know, we talked about this before when we watched TAPS, because I lived so close to an airbase and knew so many people who were in the Air Force, uh, had a certain amount of romanticization and glamour attached to military lifestyle officers in particular. And yeah, like like the, the elite forces in particular. Part of the Navy's contract with the production was that they would have recruitment stations outside select theaters during showings of Top Gun. Yeah. It was rumored at the time that those recruitment stations led to a 500% increase in Navy recruitment. It turns out it was 8%. Okay. But that's still a lot of kids who decided to go join the Navy because of Top Gun. And that's easy to do in peacetime. I think one of the things that's interesting about Top Gun is that I was never clear who the bad guy was. Like, who who was the American enemy at the time? Like, they just keep saying bogeys. They don't tell us really where they are. And this, I think, is the argument against allegations of American propaganda, right? This is clearly a pro-militarism film. But it's not a uniquely American militarism. It is just militarism in general, right? We get mm-hmm. some very careful language in the script. We are not at war, Tom Skerritt tells us initially. Right. We are not policymakers. We are just the arm of the civilian government. Yeah, there's something kind of Knights of the Round Table about it. This is exactly it. Yes, we are heroizing these officers. We are heroizing the, the institution of the military service, right? We are mm-hmm. making this a thing of, of glamour. A yeah. thing that is desirable, that is virtuous in and of itself, that these men are noble in and of themselves. Right. Rather than recognizing the military as an unfortunate necessity in, you know, the real politic of the real world, that we right. need militaries for defense. Rather, we are presenting them as things which are themselves heroic. And these individuals mm. as people who are themselves heroic. Yeah, it's interesting that we spend so much time in the film putting like names and character and personality and families attached to these fighter pilots to humanize mm-hmm. them. Yep. But then when they're shooting down the bogeys in the end, those are nameless, faceless bogeys. They are just bogeys. the enemy, right? Just the enemy, yeah. But because of that, we're not really, it seems to me, talking about warfare. We're not really talking about the pursuit of a political agenda. No, right? it's... It- we're painstakingly, in the course of this film, 
we have the first engagement with the MIGs where we don't know who they are or nope, what they want and we the scare MIGs. them off and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. We then have training. It's just training for right. the rest of the film. Which is, until... I think, one of the reasons that it's so successful. Exactly. And then at the very end, we are acting to protect an American communication ship, an unarmed communication right. ship, which has strayed into, quote, foreign waters. Mm. We're not even naming what the enemy is. And that's why I think if you gave identity to those pilots, if you gave identity to even those planes, you know, they're all these these black MiGs that are flying around. Right. If they had identities at all, you would be talking about war. You would necessarily yeah. be talking about diplomacy. You would be yes. talking about international and politics. politics. Mm-hmm. And here, by anonymizing the enemy, mm-hmm. we are instead talking about things that are more abstract. We're talking about the pursuit of excellence. excellence. We're talking yeah, about the mastery of man over machine. We're right. talking about courage and we're talking about teamwork and we're talking about camaraderie. And you're absolutely right. It is it is Camelot, right? Mm. Which completely fits with American notions of itself right. during the Reagan era, right? Sure. This is, this city is the, the city on the hill. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So it makes sense that we're leaning into that. And to be clear, I think that's gross. I think yeah. that's gross when no, applied to real life. Yes. We should absolutely not talk about soldiers like that or, or any military personnel like that in the real world. But this is not the real world. This is a fiction. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much we can condemn a text that takes pains to not engage with the kinds of accusations right. that critics would make. I, I don't think I would have any discomfort with it except for the... <laughs> information I now have about there being recruitment stations there with the film coming out because of course you would assume recruitment higher. I just even noticed in the conversation, uh, there were a couple of them in fact I think, where Maverick and Iceman are talking and there's the bulletin board behind them and it's got just the, I don't remember what the Navy version of Be All You Can Be is, but it's the like recruitment poster for the yeah, Navy. There are actual them. Navy recruitment posters, which of course would of not course exist would in these locker rooms. Right. Well, you no, recruited all already. those guys yeah, are recruited. Yeah. You're we're, about we're as in. recruited as a guy can be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a point. The other, I think, counterpoint to allegations of, of militaristic propagandism is the absence of violence in the film. We have the initial conflict with the MiGs in which we are careful to scare these guys away. We we get the line. Cruz gets the line about scaring these guys away. Then we're training. Mm -hmm. And we are only taking actual violent action at the end of the film in the defense of our fellow pilot who is so overwhelmed and so benighted. It's really about teamwork and camaraderie there than it is about hatred of the enemy or the desire to inflict violence upon them. Five on one at that point. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's an interesting abstraction that reminds me of, you know, there's a reason that Top Gun is one of the most adapted films into video game titles. They are still Definitely making Top Gun video, video games game feeling. now. Definitely video game Because feeling. this does what video games do, which is abstract the violence out to a level of skill and mastery. Yeah, that's really brilliant. Yeah, that's a great take, darling. So really what we're talking about is that combination of, of individualism and organization. You have to mm-hmm. be courageous and bold individually, but you also have to be a part of a team. But right. crucially, being a part of a team does not mean blindly following all the rules of the team. Mm-hmm. I love, I only caught this on this viewing of the film. Tom Scarrett breaks the rules when he tells Maverick about his dad. Yes. I, I could be fired for this. This could end yep. my career, is what he says. So he's even then not saying, you just have to be good and yeah. play by the rules. We're so celebratory of that kind of of individualism that that rugged american individualism wild card they say and i gotta tell you if there's anything about this film that that rubs me wrong 
it's that more than it's the militarism, more than it's the American propagandism. Oh, it's, it's, you're on the side of Iceman saying, you know, you're dangerous and play by the rules and not necessarily play by the rules, but you are dangerous. It's, yeah. it's not even Iceman as much as it's Goose. Goose keeps saying to Maverick, please, please, I have a family. Please. Yes. We do three beats in this film and they've obviously known each other for forever yeah and the first time we have this beat it's not like hey i know we've never had this conversation but you've got right. to stop being an asshole this is a part of their relationship and tom cruise never learns he never learns this is the real you know roger ebert master plan for tom cruise films tom cruise is incredibly cocky does things his own way and then the world accepts that he was right all along now that's interesting i feel like pete learns like it takes the, the death of goose but when he then goes back for iceman and won't give up his wingman he goes back to rescue iceman he goes back to to be the hero it's it's not that he is antagonistic toward the other pilots it's that mm. he just wants to be the hero yeah when he leaves his when he's flying with hollywood and he goes out after viper we're covering a lot of the movie here in our preamble by the way. <laughs> we're have to move quickly through the beat by beat but when he leaves hollywood to go in pursuit of viper it's not because Hollywood needs his help. It's because he wants to be the star. Right. He wants to be the hero. He has no problem taking care of his wingman at the end of the movie. What he's doing there is not integrating himself into his culture. He's overcoming his fear. That moment is all about overcoming his, his mm. trauma after the death of Goose. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, that, that's too bad. I like to see it as having learned as well and having synthesized, I suppose, that ability to do, to do both, to be the hero and to stay with your guy, to keep your team in mind and yeah. not just be a hotshot. But it's not real teamwork at the end. And I think that that's, that's it's kind of the trick true. that the film yeah. pulls, right? Yeah. It's this yeah. amazing close-up magic mm. where it mm. tells you that it's doing this thing while it's absolutely not doing this thing. And then everyone behaves like it's great at the end. You can be my wingman anytime. No, oh, you well, can be mine. Because I, yeah. I saved you? <laughs> like, mm. I'm the hero here. You're just also a guy who's on this boat. Interesting. Let's sidestep mm -hmm. and talk a little about the representation of the physical in the film. Mm. All these incredibly attractive young men. Yeah. Let's talk about the female gaze of the film, shall we? Yeah. Does the, the film have a female gaze, firstly? Does the film have a homosexual male gaze? Interesting. What, what do you feel about this? Yeah. Ooh. This I find way more complicated. This is complicated. The gaze of the film, I would have to argue, I think, having watched it so recently... That the gaze of the film is homoerotic. I think that the gaze mm -hmm. mostly is. Not even necessarily erotic, though. Because the film is very affectionate. It's very physically affectionate yeah. across genders. Like, one of my favorite moments is when Maverick and Carol... Uh, Goose's wife cuddled up are in the booth. snuggled yeah. up in the booth. I really love that. Too. Yeah, talking to Charlie, and they have such like an affectionate, physical, flirty. It's not brother sister energy happening. No, there. absolutely not. Like it's. I think maybe the gaze of the film is just Greek. Like <laughs> it's just <laughs> <laughs> in what sense? Explore Philadelphic, that for our, perhaps. Yes. 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 That, well, I think that's a really astute observation, actually. I think you're absolutely right. This film loves the bodies of these men. Yeah. That's clear. Like, that's unarguable. You right. cannot tell me that this is not charged with a sense of the beauty of these young men. Yes. But it but not doesn't sexual. seem to be sexual no, to me. No. no. Yeah. It gets us into questions of, of a homo society, right? It gets us into questions of 
communities of men and, and male friendships and male relationships that are not sexual and how those are depicted on screen. There's a fantastic book by a sociologist called Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick called Between Men, English Literature and Male Homosocial Desire mm. that explores in part the connections between the desire for homosocial community, that is just a man's desire for communities of men. This is also also true of women, by the way. Yeah. You know, as yeah. Adrian Rich talks about extensively, but communities of women are inevitably differently oriented from communities of men. That men desire this kind of community and this kind of fraternity. Right. But because our enculturated homophobic right. fears get in the way, that these things inevitably become sexually charged even when they are not sexually charged. Interesting. That the fear of homosexual desire yeah. in particularly the American masculine identity prevents us from forming meaningful homosocial relationships. That is really interesting because another thing that this film makes me think about is that Top Gun is one of the very few movies that does for male bodies what almost every other Hollywood movie does for female bodies, which is just assume that everyone finds them hot. You're absolutely right. I was going to say that, that that normalizes a heterosexual perspective, but that's assuming that this is a film made for women. Right. And it's and clearly it's not. not a film yeah. made for women. Yeah. It's a film made for everyone that just assumes that we are all in a very, you're right, open and Hellenistic kind of way. Hellenistic, yeah. Capable of recognizing the beauty of these figures. Mm. Is this a sexy movie? I'm going to say yes, it's a sexy movie, even though it is not a very sexual movie. Although, can we talk about how that's much tongue there is in the kissing? You know, we talked back in Losing It about how his kiss with Shelley Long at the end of the film is so good. And that's so yeah. surprising because when we think of Tom Cruise much later in his career, we think of him being a very bad, very wooden kisser. <laughs> that is clearly something that he grows into because this is some hot kissing. We'll have to track it at yeah. some point. Yeah. What I find most interesting about this distinction of, of homoeroticism versus the desire for homosocialism mm -hmm. is that this film is super chill about homosexuality. This film does, does not engage in a moment of gay panic. Yeah, yeah. Which is crazy. Even as we invoke it, we get that moment with Hollywood and Wolfman during yeah. the first briefing at Miramar. This is giving this me, is giving a, me hard a hard on. on. Don't tease me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get the actual textual recognition that Maverick and Goose are basically work husbands, that they yes. have a very close and very intimate relationship. They are physically very intimate with one another, Yeah. even when they are embarrassing themselves, which is traditionally a, a, a massive trigger for that kind of, you know, competitive, combative, Absolutely. masculine thing. Mm -hmm. There's none of that in no, this film. It's no. wild. Well, and yeah, and when we're introduced to Iceman, it's mostly the cinematography and the way that the shot is set up because it's not actually true, but it looks very much like it must be Slider who's next to him, has yeah, his arm around yeah. him. Yeah, he and actually, no, he does actually have he his does, arm around it's, him. Yes. I know it's around the chair. But it's, it's, like, it's around the back of the chair, yeah. but it is also encompassing the frame yes. of, of, of Tom Kaczynski's body, yes. And that's what I mean, I suppose, by like cinematographically, yeah. it looks like his arm is around him when really it's like, it's around the chair, but it's like, it's again, cozy. It's very affectionate. You know, and maybe we're like putting too narrow a focus on it. Maybe it is just a queer gaze. This is one of the great words, the great things about the word queer is that it just encompasses so much more. It just means not heteronormative. It is not a heteronormative gaze. Right. And I think you could maybe even assert that the version of the queer gaze that we are getting in this film is like an ace gaze, right? That we're getting Almost, something that is yeah. asexual, aromantic towards these men. That what we are seeing 
in the in the depiction of their bodies as in the depiction of their characters their explicit goals and motivations what mm-hmm. we are seeing is the pursuit of excellence we right. are supposed to recognize that Val Kilmer is hot or that uh, Rick Rossovich is hot when he gets his little flex on oh, the volleyball yeah. court right that is so a, that is very hellenistic to that think is of a it. Yeah. hot move but what uh-huh. we are supposed to recognize is his excellence his yeah more his physique than, more yes, than his yeah more than his sexual desirability yeah i would i would say so which means that we can circumvent mm-hmm. any notion of of homophobic reactionaryism. Yeah. Because nothing here is sexual. Which is not to say that we should allow any overlap between the film's intent and the audience's response. Oh, no. If you are a queer viewer and you find this to be incredibly hot, if you find it to be as many men, judging by the accounts on the internet, have. Yeah absolutely informative of your queer identity. I'm sure many straight women have found it to be absolutely informative of their heterosexual identity. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you find that in the film, then it is in the film. Yeah. That is inarguable. Mm-hmm. But the thing that we are presented with, the text of the film itself, is just more interesting and softer and gentler. I see an absolute continuity between the depiction of these bodies, the depiction of these intimate relationships, mm-hmm. and the eventual relationship between Maverick and Viper. This explicitly paternal relationship yes. mm-hmm. where protecting Greece again <laughs> no again right but this is this is the mentor yeah. figure mm-hmm. i love the framing that we get during the graduation ceremony when maverick goes up to ice to to congratulate him on winning the top gun trophy the composition in that shot where we have maverick on the extreme right we have slider basically off screen yeah. on the extreme right yeah. we have michael ironside between him and iceman who's in like the left middle quadrant and then we have tom scarrett off to the other side it's so good. Gorgeous. It's yeah. all human life is here. It's so lovely. <laughs> but it is the brothers being reunited under yeah. the paternalistic gaze of their father figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy, I think, to picture this story working just as well if we replace the U.S. Navy with, you know, the Spartan army. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or in some ways, it feels like a sports movie, too. We talked about the sports movies. And sure. it, it feels that way also, that this could be a football team. You're right. And sports movies abstract out the detail of actual sport in exchange for narrative yeah. power in exactly the same way that this film is abstracting out the details of modern warfare sure. for narrative power. Yeah. The yeah. Olympics might be the best way to go. Yeah. Let's, I guess, kind of bring all of this together. And I'm going to ask you a very complicated question. Oh, okay. More complicated than the gays? With okay. <laughs> all of this in mind, with, with the sexuality or the asexuality of it all, with the militarism, with the propagandism, with the Americanism of it all, with the very complicated world in which we now live, with the way that this film is turned into something that it initially is not by the rise of patriotism, particularly in the early 21st century in the mm-hmm. wake of 9-11, mm-hmm. the way that this film has been turned, do you feel comfortable liking Top Gun? Do you feel comfortable that this is a good film with a good heart? Uh, I mean, it, it is complicated. Do I feel that I will be judged for it? Yes. <laughs> Do I feel... That's a different question. That I, guess. I like yeah, it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that I would feel confident telling anyone who found this subject matter to be objectionable that they were wrong. Completely. I think it's yes. all there. Like, yeah. the considered place of criticism that I have come to feels feels firm it feels solid otherwise i wouldn't be presenting it here on the podcast right but it also feels like a little thin it does not feel overwhelming it feels as though i have found a place of of resolution with this text yes which i think is natural to both of us that's where we prefer to fall especially when something is like mildly controversial Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think we prefer to fall on the side of seeing what is good and what we can enjoy and i think that's true i think in general yeah we, we love things Yes. But mm-hmm. hashtag we love things. <laughs> but 
we are the kinds of people for whom a movie can be completely ruined by one tone deaf element. That is by also one true. Thoughtless or yeah. you know homophobic or violent element. That is true. You know that we we just cannot reconcile. Mm-hmm. I am kind of reconciled to Top Gun. I think yeah yeah. But I think if so. you're not, dear listener, I get it. I do. I get it. The world <laughs> yeah. is a complicated place, and many of the things that we're discussing here have been turned to darker purpose and turned Absolutely. to greater violence in the aftermath of this film. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's not point. the film's fault, but it also means that you're not wrong for judging the film by that metric. Absolutely. We live in a society. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too, that these conversations are best as conversations and not as what sometimes feels like lecture format in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, so. sorry about that. It's just instinctive. <laughs> Uh, this is something I'll be interested to hear some feedback from in the Patreon Discord for sure, uh, or yes. even just in an email format. You can email us, laststarpod yeah. at gmail.com. You can come join us on our Discord, patreon.com slash laststarpod. There are mm-hmm. always great discussions happening over there. Yes. With that, before we get into the beat by beat, a very short game. I'm going to demand some creativity for you right now because oh. we are going into this story without appropriate code names. And that simply will not stand. <laughs> we need our call signs. I want to make your call sign whiskey. Oh, whiskey's good. Yeah? That's so good. Thanks. Huh. Now I have to think of a better one for you. <laughs> okay, well, if I'm going to be whiskey, then you can be shot glass. How about that? Shot glass. Because <laughs> you know how you're smaller than me, but also more dangerous? <laughs> sure. Whiskey and shot glass. <laughs> It took me so long while watching this film to understand that they keep saying Rio to refer to their co-pilots, the, the guys yeah. in the back. Radar intercept officer. That's what it is. But wow. we're never given that because yeah. so much of the technical information in this film is never explained. You just have to let it wash over you. Yeah. Feels, Which works for me. Yeah. It's, what do you call it? Like immersion? Like Absolutely. Yeah. Language? Yeah. It feels a little like Sorkin. It feels a little where this the technical language just has a cadence of its own and the cadence yeah. communicates the meaning even if... The actual detail doesn't. We should credit Prozer. I should mention, too, by the way, that the Prozer script is available online. I have read it. Oh. It is not as good as the finished script, but the technical language is really sharp. And it's interesting to see how it evolves and shapes, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's get into our breakdown of this plot, which is necessarily, I think, going to be a little sketchy. Because the thing about this movie is that it moves. It starts at a breakneck pace. And doesn't really let up until we get to a couple of dialogue scenes. Yeah. And then picks up again afterward, I feel like. Yeah, I I feel like it it kind of grinds to a halt in the back third, something somewhere around there. Yeah. It it does, undeniably. Yes. But that's okay. I don't mind. We open on Faltermeyer's fantastic moody score. We get those It's a baller opener. It, it takes time to rise before yeah. it gets to like its its heroic aspect. Mm. It's just like a tone piece to mm-hmm. begin with. And then we're coming in through the really simple understated credits to that title card yep. that gives us the history of the fighter weapons school. The flyers call it Top, Top Gun. It's so cool. We then get all of those incredible monochromatic shots of the deck of yes. the Enterprise, these silhouetted shots of pilots and planes with this orange vivid sky behind them. This Gorgeous. looks great now. Yeah. Never mind in 86. Absolutely. I in can't fact, imagine. Didn't they reuse it for Maverick or did they just no, reshoot they it? Resho- they reshot it. Fucking A. And so they reshot cool. it very carefully. Yeah. And it doesn't look better now than it, it did then. It doesn't look better. It looked the same because we watched Top Gun the night before we went to go see Maverick. I believe so. Yeah. Maybe two yeah. days before. And we were like, this is the same footage. This it's is, they just, very they're just doing footage. it again. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. It's just it, incredible. It looks gorgeous. And yeah. then for all of that to establish the scene, to establish this mood, and then 
the kick of the afterburners, the, the, the movement into Danger Zone. Yeah. Which is like not a good song, but simultaneously a perfect song. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It's, I mean, it's difficult to yes. quantify its goodness. <laughs> in that I would never listen to it when I'm not watching Top no. Gun, but when I'm watching Top Gun, it's the best thing in the world. Yeah, or if it like came on at a dive bar, it might be all right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or like, a, like if you're driving a pickup down a country road. Like. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's just, it's gorgeous cinematography, but it's not just gorgeous cinematography. It mm. also communicates everything we need to know about this world. Yes. We see the process of takeoff and landing, which we are going to need when Cougar's having so much trouble at the end of this opening uh -huh. prologue sequence, we also see how many people are involved. We see that this is a team yeah. effort. We see that there are individual pilots, yes, but that the whole ground crew has to work together to to execute on this. Mm -hmm. It honestly reminds me of nothing more than Formula One, which oh, you've gotten sure. so into in the course of the Love last Formula year. Formula One, yes. But it's that combination of incredibly skilled and technical engineers yeah. and the guy. Yeah. The guy who was doing that's the thing. That's absolutely right. That's that's a really good analogy. Yeah, that's cool. Radar detects an encroaching enemy aircraft originally intended to be, as I said, North Korean in the script, but now just, you know, bad guys. A bogey. I love it. I was startled by that because Top Gun Maverick took a lot of criticism for being somewhat milquetoast in its depiction of international politics and for not naming the target of the operation in its plot and for doing yeah. some really weird linguistic work around just referring to the enemy and enemy aircraft yeah. consistently and never saying this is what we are doing right if you had asked me yesterday who are the bad guys in top gun i would have said the russians obviously wow the fact that it isn't is just really interesting to me. And mm -hmm. the fact that Maverick gets hit so hard with something that is just as true of the original film, mm. I find it interesting, yeah. Yeah. I, As a movie watcher, I much prefer it. As an informed American citizen, that's a I don't really know good how point. Yeah. yeah, there is an irresponsibility in right. pretending that you can abstract yourself right. out, of, uh, out of international politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, certainly. This is where you get the temptation to create a fictionalized country. Exactly. But even then, you're going to be engaging sure. in, in, in race tropes. Yes. You're going to be engaging in cultural tropes yeah, that you want not well. to mess with, mm -hmm. right? You were right, too, to note earlier that the enemy planes are just consistently referred to as bogeys, yeah. which I'm going to tell you, growing up in Britain, was hilarious. Oh, because it's a booger, right? It's a booger, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's a pretty flat joke that was parodied over and over and sure. over again. They do that in Hot Shots. Hey, we made it an hour and a half into this podcast without mentioning Hot Shots. How's that? I think they do that exact joke of someone sneezing on the radar screen in Hot Shots. So, yeah. you know, only the highest level of comedy Gee, there. Mm -hmm. So these bogeys, excuse me, are intercepted by two F-14s, our heroes, Cougar and Merlin and Maverick and Goose. Tim Robbins is incidentally in this film. I am never going to remember that Tim Robbins is in this film. It's always going to surprise me. Every time I'm like, oh yeah, Merlin. It's going to surprise you the next time it happens too, because he co-stars alongside Tom Cruise in 2005's War of the Worlds by oh, Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yeah, so okay. we're going to see the we'll two see. of them almost share the screen again. <laughs> he is a little bit bigger in, in War of the Worlds. He goes okay. crazy because of the alien invasion. Oh, sure. As he would. Mm -hmm. Cougar and Maverick investigate, but it turns out that there are two of the enemy planes, not one. Cougar is under pressure, but Maverick is a pro. We get these lines. I'm going for missile lock. Let's see if we can scare this guy out of here, that it is about domination, right? right? Which let's not pretend is not nope. innately masculine to the desire mm -hmm. to dominate someone else through the application of skill and technology in this instance. But it's not crucially about violence. We see this again as the MiG gets the missile lock on Cougar, who is stressing out. Maverick comes to the rescue, intimidating the MiG with the aerial bravado. I was inverted, as he says. <laughs> Maverick and Goose are chatty, they're chill, they're relaxed, but Cougar is just 
traumatized. Right. Maverick returns to the carrier, but now, returns I'm to I'm help. sorry, just for my own edification. This is later described as a dive, a 4G dive. It did not look like a dive no. to me when he was inverted. What happened, the MIG does dive away. Uh-huh. So a negative dive, a positive Gs are applied when you lift the nose of the aircraft and it rises up. Okay. That sinks you into your seat. That right. is a positive G maneuver. Uh-huh. Negative Gs are when you push the nose of the plane down and you rise out of your seat. Okay. So at the end of that encounter, the MIG does dive away. Uh-huh. So it would be in... It's described as what a four G negative dive. Right, that's right. the thing that, so that Charlie look... is saying it can't do, yes. and he's saying yes, it, he can. Says, I yes it, it can. I saw it do it. Yeah, okay. but also, yeah. I mean, some of the cinematography, because of the production constraints, as we described, right. Some of the cinematography is not maybe going to be exactly what you want. Well, and it's also the thing I remember from watching The Aviator mm-hmm. is how Howard Hughes was like when they're filming the planes in the air. They don't look fast anymore. Yeah, They're yeah. just kind of hovering. And it looks it's cool still, but it's not communicating what you need it to communicate. It's why we have this uh, beat in the story later about the hard deck being 10,000 feet. Mm. But those planes are clearly flying at like 800 feet. Yeah. Because if they're just up in the sky, you can't communicate You pace. can't tell. Yeah. The other thing that we get consistently through this is that engagement ranges for these aircraft are measured in miles, not in hundreds of feet. Yeah, so they're like 150. never be that close to each other. It's crazy. Yeah, wow, interesting, yeah. But that's the cinematic compromise. That's the practicality that Scott is hired for. It communicates the intent of the scene without worrying too much about the technical specificity while also not broaching that technical specificity, Mm -hmm. right? The, The purpose is preserved even if, yeah, the framing of it almost is is changed. Mm -hmm. So Maverick flies back to the carrier. He touches down for a second, but then decides to go back and help Cougar in. I love everything that's happening here. I think the first 15 minutes of this film are just fantastic. I think they are gorgeous. I think we clearly and cleanly delineate character. And we get right into it. Like we're in the planes in seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, too, how readily we establish Maverick's character here. He's doing the right thing. He is a heroic character, but he is breaking the rules to do it. He is breaking the laws of authority Yes, to do it. Save the cat is kind of Mm. hacky and terrible screenwriting strategy. But we do need to demonstrate that our hero is likable. We do need to demonstrate that our hero is a good person in order to side with him, particularly in a film like this where – his overwhelming arrogance and refusal to compromise is like fundamental to his character. Right. We have to demonstrate that he has a good heart. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, works here beautifully. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I almost like the Prosser draft of what happens in this sequence better because it's not engagement with enemy aircraft. It's just terrible weather. What happens oh. is that Cougar gets lost. He gets disoriented. He can't tell where he is in the sky and he can't tell which way his plane is pointing, which makes more sense for Maverick to go back and give him guidelines Follow my to help wing. him in. Yeah, yeah. That is, it's kind of powerful, but we need to introduce the notional the enemy yeah. at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll say about this too is that it is intimate. It is emotionally literate. It is understated. There's no false bravado here. Right. We have... Goose's very real concern that they are low on gas. We have Merlin's very real concern and growing panic that something yes. bad has happened to his friend. And then we have Maverick extending real gentleness and emotional empathy to Cougar to yes. guide him home. Yes. This is Although very I do... healthy, robust masculinity, isn't it? Yes, yes. Although, uh, crucially, I don't think he ever admits that he was wrong then for initially leaving Cougar, which is what Iceman calls him out for. Like, while you were showboating with this MIG... Who was covering Cougar? He says, well, Cougar was fine. We know that Cougar was was not fine. He was not fine. Absolutely not fine. Absolutely right. This is exact, and and this is perhaps 
the criticism that we can levy at this film, we're going to do that three times. Yes. We're going to hit every emotional beat three times mm. in order to arc him through his story, such yeah. as it is. We hard cut to Cougar standing in front of his commanding officer and he resigns. Maverick and Goose get chewed out with some excruciating exposition. That we don't need. Yeah. As you know, you're pilots and you fly airplanes. Airplanes are the ones that go in the sky. <laughs> oh, my God. But I've got to send someone to Miramar. Cougar was number one. Then he screwed up. Now you're number one. Like, it's all just... Well, we this didn't need it. what I was talking earlier about. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to hand any actor that. Yeah. I wish no one had handed James Tolkien that. Mm-hmm. But he just can't bring any life to it. It's just, it's so formulaic. Yeah. And a character that he's played 50 times already by and this point in his career. that's the thing is that, yeah, it just, it happens really quickly, which is fine. It, to me, it's not like a stinker, but it's just unnecessary. We do get the first of our genuinely iconic Top Gun lines here. Mm -hmm. Your ego is writing checks, your body can't cash. Yeah. That's a pretty great that's line. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Does it yeah. feel too authored for you? Does it feel organic? Does it feel that it fits this operatic tonality that we have throughout this film? Yeah. I like the whole opening sequence. I really do. Like, it's weird that we never come back to Cougar. Like, it seems that he should he should show up somehow again. He is dead to us. He is dead to us. He is dead to us. Yeah. This is a an aerial fraternity. Mm -hmm. And he has, le he has departed into the other world as surely as Goose has. Well, and that's what Iceman says. He was a good man. And... Is. It is. still is, yeah. Still is. That's, yeah, what, that's I what I meant. meant. Yeah. That's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. No, yeah. that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So this breathless 15-minute prologue is concluded with Tom Cruise on a motorcycle wearing that jacket racing alongside the runway at Miramar alongside the so F-14. Hot. It's so cool. This alone makes Tom Cruise who Tom Cruise is. Yeah. This alone is a star-making performance, and it's 10 seconds. Yeah. It's astonishing. We been talking a lot about you know the sexiness or not sexiness of this film mm -hmm. this is the first film in which Cruz is genuinely hot right like he's I, good looking in this film. you know it's so Very interesting sweaty, now that we but... oh my god they're all so sweaty <laughs> someone is clearly spritzing all of these men um it's interesting because i notice now more that we're like tracking it from start to finish how very young he is mm -hmm. and so you still i i feel like i still see him pretending to be cool before he is cool you know what i mean like i, I, I absolutely feel it do. sometimes this is the film that feels like he's landing it more often than not though he gets some I think very so successful too. sequences i absolutely do and one of my notes i think i wrote down is that this role must have been such a gift to just give you the kind of confidence that you need in this industry. Yeah. Because if you're always <laughs> playing the kind of derpy kid, you're always going to feel a little bit like the derpy kid. You After know what you I mean? spent five months in London shooting a fairy boy with no pants. Right. Yes. And now, could you come and be the hottest guy in the world, the yeah. coolest guy in the world, and also you're always right? I mean... It's not bad. It's I, I And the way that actors work is that you do have to you have to like embody that you have mm -hmm. to let it become a part of your personality and different actors have different ways of doing that and some more than others and of course like the method actors do it to extremes but no matter what you end up finding more parts of yourself mm -hmm. through a character and taking other parts of what this character ends up giving you into the rest of your life and I think that that happened for Tom Cruise I think that Pete Mitchell was good for him and I think he was good for Pete. He did kind of, yeah, just manifest this personality yeah. for the rest of his career, right? But he always has that somewhat vulnerable charm that somewhat like, I always feel that Pete thinks he's about to get figured out that he's not the guy that he thinks he is. 100%. And I think Tom Cruise brings that. I don't think it's in the script. It's in every time he smiles. Yes. 
and laughs. Every time and he smiles, and when he laughs, like, and he becomes yeah. such a boy. Yeah, yeah. So we get more exposition at this point about the purpose of Top Gun. We introduce Michael Ironside as Jester and Tom Skerritt as mm-hmm. Viper. And as I said, this is our third time getting this exposition. We get it in the title card. We get it from James Tolkien on the ship. Yes. And now we're getting it again. Did Ten you times. know that Top Gun is for the pilots who are really good pilots? Oh, the top 1%, the elite? Oh, I, I think they mentioned that a couple times. <laughs> we're also introduced, of course, to our ensemble cast, most of whom are giving variations on the same kind of, yeah. of cocky flyboy performance, but, you know, enjoyable nonetheless. This is probably the time where we should acknowledge the presence of the only black pilot in the room. Yes. Clarence Gilliard, mm-hmm. who is call-signed Sundown. That's a choice. Wow. Just Are we going to talk you, about... Just going to let you deal with that for a I second. mean, that's a, that's a choice. There are explanations offered mm-hmm. that he is Sundown because that's when it gets dark. But that's still bad. Sun, uh, a, still bad and not yeah. an excuse in any way. B... Sundown towns. Yeah. We live in a we town that a was a sundown town until sundown town. the 1960s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to give us a brief pricey of sundown towns for those who don't exist in Sun- the sure. post-segregation yeah. South? Sundown town means that if you're a black person living in the district of this township, that you had to be indoors in your own home after the sun went down or you could and would be arrested or worse. Yeah. Often Just worse. Basically a constant racially motivated yes. curfew law. Yeah. Awful. Yuck. It, I did not bad, notice right? that. It's, yeah. it's, what's funny is that I thought that his call sign, because somebody's call sign voodoo, which is already bad, but this is worse. Yeah. There is a chance that somebody did that in, in the same way that, you know, we take back words that were once used against us. You know, I've been using queer this whole time, for example, we is a great example of one that I can use myself. Our own call signs, though. No. Call signs are clear. And I have and no idea. And that's what idea. I mean to say is I don't know who. Right wrote that particular point i don't have enough information to know whether this was something done to take the teeth out of something or something done out of ignorance or worse i can't say but i do know that i don't like it we wish someone had made a better choice i wish someone had made a better and different choice Yeah. yeah or taken the time to walk us through it while we're talking about call signs should we talk about maverick Yeah, sure. Because Maverick is a fascinating word and Mm -hmm. also a weirdly modern world, by which I mean it's, you know, just less than 200 years old. It's attested to from 1867, a calf or a yearling found without an owner's brand. This is from Texas. Because of a Texas rancher by the name of Samuel A. Maverick, who was just really slapdash about branding his cattle. So (laughs) when one of these yearlings would wander off, and to be found by someone else, they would look at it. It wouldn't have a brand. And they would say, oh, it's a maverick. Wow. <laughs> so from that, it evolved to mean, you know, without leadership or governance. That's really interesting. Yeah. I like that. I knew it was like a Western word, but yeah. I didn't know to what extent. That's really interesting. So that night, our little lost calf, Maverick and Goose, <laughs> go to the bar. This is where we get our real introduction to Iceman and Slider. We're locking that conflict. We're establishing mm-hmm. some egos. Then unpleasantly... Goose bets $20 that Maverick will not be able to sleep with someone on the premises. Yeah. Carnal knowledge. Carnal knowledge. Yeah. I mean. The problem here is that Anthony Edwards is so goddamn charming. He is so charming. That I find it hard to be upset with him, even when he is literally betting Maverick to go get laid. Yeah. You know, although you're hot and you're in your 20s and you're at Miramar, like maybe go get laid that night. Like maybe it's okay. Maybe Maybe go get laid. I've got no problem with maybe go get laid. If I'm 
the girl getting dressed to go out to hang out with the Top Gun men? Sure. I am really hoping one of them takes me home. With those like, naval aviators? Crossed, right? <laughs> yes. My little souvenir. Oh, my God. Just collect the sunglasses? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like, listen, maybe everyone wins. Maverick eyes Kelly McGillis across the room. And, of course, they end up duetting her. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is camp culture. This is oh my God. by far the most theater kid performative thing in this entire movie. It's so terrific. And I had forgotten, I think I forget every time, how bad they are at it. They're which so makes it bad, which so makes much it good. better. Because it if they were so good singers, this would just be bad. This it would just, just be, be embarrassing. Bad writing, yeah, yes. yeah, it would be weird. Yeah. A, a detail that I so love fun. about this is that mm-hmm. everyone joining in on the song and it turning into like the whole bar yeah. rousing. Just when you're thinking, oh no, this is this is awful. Just cringe, when cringe. the cringe is rising, <laughs> everybody joins in and it becomes fantastic and transcendent. That was not in the script. That happened at the table read before they started principal photography. Oh my God. Everyone was just so relaxed and chill and feeling so thrilled that they finally had this great script that Cruz and Edwards start singing and everyone at the table rejoins in. Scar and revises the script to include it's that like, in the final that's shoot. What happen. That's oh, what we're going to do. I love it. How great is that? I love it. That's my favorite kind of collaborative movie magic. Let's talk about Charlie and let's talk about Kelly McGillis. How do you feel she works in this opening scene? She has to really stand up to Cruz, who is bringing just all of his energy. Yeah. Just all of it right now. Um, we get the beat at the bar. Mm-hmm. We get her separating back to her table to have drinks with, I'm going to guess, her dad. Right. Weird. And then he follows her into the ladies' room. Which that part is, is not cool. Not cool. Not cool, and I don't like it. But does lead to probably the most charming, flirtatious interaction that they have. That moment when he's like testing the, the yes. resilience of the counter. I was thinking the counter, actually. Very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. So what do we think of of her and him, I guess? What do you think of their chemistry? Uh, yeah, their chemistry is good, I think. Uh, again, I think that either Tom Cruise or Pete Mitchell, maybe both, are showing that little bit of nervousness. They're showing that, I, you know what, I guess it is both. Because he's like berating himself when, after she wanders off with the yes. Budweiser. And he's like, real oh, slick. yeah, real <laughs> slick guy. Yeah, sure. And, and needs something to put out the flames or whatever. Right. Meaning because I crashed and burned, <laughs> not because I'm so hot for this woman. Uh, so there's some vulnerability there that is good. She also, to me, and this is always very important to me watching films like this, seems to hold all the cards and be in control of the whole situation the whole time. So even when he's coming on to her, it's very clear that she is the one who is calling the shots here. So I'm able to relax and enjoy it and enjoy like her enjoying it, but also shutting it down. Well, and the fact that she's as smart as he is, as capable as he is, and you're right, is holding cards, not just socially in this situation, but she just knows more about him right. than he. That moment when she's, oh, you're a pilot? Yeah. And she does this little blink, and it's so cute. Yeah. But also is just her messing with him. Yeah. It's just her playing <laughs> with him. Not least of all, because, of course, he's in uniform. Like, right. This is, this is a bit that we're At doing. At Myanmar. So, yes. like, where all of the pilots go to their bar. Like, exactly. She knows. She would know anyway, unless she was just, you know, fresh off the bus or something. But, yeah. Yeah. I think she's terrific through this scene. I like her a great deal in this film. Mm-hmm. I think she's a little lost when the film loses energy. Yeah. She suffers from that loss of energy mm. the most. When she goes after his crisis of confidence to console him and to to try and get him to come back to the program. Yeah. That scene is bad and she is bad in it because it just has no motive force. But here, everything mm. is sparky. My favorite thing about this sequence, when she walks out yes. of the bathroom and says, Your friend was magnificent. <laughs> While touching up her lips is so good. So good. So good. 
So we cut hard to the following morning and the first pre-flight briefing, I guess. We introduce Charlie, this civilian liaison. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. She's so good. The energy in the ensemble cast, I think, in general, is really strong. But Cruz is really standing out here. His bravado, his his cockiness, his cocky Mm -hmm. attitude, which is anchored in, of course, a real personal experience. I went looking, and it turns out that this is the first instance that I can find of. It's classified. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, which is such a hacky, tropey, awful line. Oh, my God. As far as I can tell, this is where it came from. Wow. Now it feels awful and makes me want to punch him just for saying such a hacky thing. This is just one of those Casablanca situations where Mm. the original text doesn't get enough respect for, for coining all of these neologistic turns of phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He's great here. His Mm -hmm. crossed arms, because I was inverted, is just such poise, Mm. such physicality. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this is followed up with the scene with Iceman, where he is wondering what was happening to Cougar. Right. We were like brothers in flight school. We got the previous night in the bar. Mm -hmm. What was happening to Cougar while Maverick was showboating? The interesting continuity there that this is in fact classified, but now Tom Cruise in front, now Maverick in front of this group of pilots has just given enough information that they all know a bit about what happened. Yeah. Is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure that, you know, there are always rumors and everybody knows that something happened. They then have their first exercise with Jester. Maverick pulls the trick. I'm going to hit the brakes. He's going to fly right by. Uh A, A famous thing that has been replicated in many, many films. He ultimately wins the engagement, but only by pursuing Jester below the hard deck and breaking the rules of engagement. I want to note here that as critical as I was of James Tolkien bringing nothing new to his Mm -hmm. performance in this film, I think Michael Ironside, who has also played this character 48 times, is really terrific in this film. Yeah, I like him. Really strong. I love Mm -hmm. his gravitas. Of course, that's why you hire. That's why you get him. Yeah, absolutely. Especially next to Tom Skerritt, who is giving something so much gentler and more paternal. Yes, it's like... Inside all of us, there are two dads. Michael <laughs> good, good dad, bad dad. <laughs> In the locker room, though, after the engagement, we learn that Iceman and Slider beat Jester without breaking the rules. Mm-hmm. Maverick is dangerous. They get chewed out by Viper. And after they leave the office, we, we linger there for just a moment to get some of that juicy backstory. We know that Viper knew Maverick's dad mm-hmm. back in the day. That'll probably be revealed later in the film, I would imagine. Everything about this is pretty formulaic yeah but it is at least moving quickly yep and doing no more than it needs to yeah i would agree and i'm aware even as i'm moving through this breakdown of how breathless this feels oh definitely it's just so compressed all the editing so is fast. so fast yeah that night goose goes to maverick to tell him that he wants to play by the rules at top gun he understands that maverick is his father's son and that must be hard but hey you got to stop trying to, you know, overcome your daddy issues in the air. Exactly. We need yeah. to be here to win. Mm-hmm. We get some uh, classroom follow-up, classroom flirting with Charlie, who seems to blow him off, but secretly gives him her address. So they have a date for later that afternoon, which just leaves us with a couple of hours to go play some volleyball, I guess. <laughs> to go play with the boys. I love the volleyball scene. It's, it's so much fun. So I'm so glad great. that they brought it back from Maverick. It's so terrific. Yeah. I actually think the recapitulation of it in Maverick does not have the charm that this version does. This version just has a little roughness, right? We're doing some speed ramping mm-hmm. to make like the shots look particularly heroic and awesome. And so we can linger on these on these torsos as they move. <laughs> I'm very distracted by Tom Cruise once again wearing inappropriate denim. 
He's just wearing <laughs> jeans through this entire thing. Jeans are bad when it's that hot anyway. And yeah. now he's got sand in them too. Well, but he's on a motorcycle. He needs the jeans and the jacket. I had the same thought where I was like, how can it simultaneously be so hot that everyone is playing out in the sweat and the right. heat in just shorts, <laughs> but also Tom Cruise is wearing jeans and a leather jacket. But if you're on a motorcycle, I mean, I guess it's that true. or road I guess rash. that's right. Yeah. I love that contrast between the slowed, speed-ramped glamour of the shots, and then occasionally we'll just get someone, it's usually either Cruz or Rick Rosevich, just hitting the ground. Yeah. And that will be at normal speed, Yeah, which just makes it look funny and dorky. <laughs> and it's the fact that there are moments within the volleyball match that don't look cool. Yes. That don't look 100, even just 85% cool, mm-hmm. that makes it endearing to me Yeah, in a way that the extremely polished airbrushed version of this that we get in Maverick leaves yeah. me I actually like that emotionally much more mm-hmm. because using that as a team building exercise yes. is strong but the the cinematography of it all it just leaves me a little colder it leaves me a little more distant which honestly is true of a lot of Maverick I think yeah Maverick himself arrives at Charlie's house and she reveals that she wants to talk about his encounter with the Meg. She has her own agenda because she's a person with goals and motivation. Love it. Love it. (laughs) After dinner, we get this great scene where he tells her about his parents, about the Mm. death of his mother and about his father disappearing. Yeah, which is surprisingly sweet. It is. Cruz himself is actually channeling his own experiences with his father's death, which happened the year before Mm. in this performance. He talks about that in some of the... uh, that Rolling Stone interview that I mentioned earlier, he talks a little about how he's taking some of that real life estrangement, right? And the yes. loss of someone that you didn't really know mm. and how he's channeling that into this aspect of his performance as Maverick. Too. That's wonderful. Yeah. It works really beautifully. I also want to speak to the set because I think that that house is so perfect and everything in it is perfect the and I love it. exteriors are gorgeous. Of course. The interior as he comes around the house, mm-hmm. gorgeous. And then that little, I don't know what that is, like a little sun trap courtyard space. Yeah fantastic it's fantastic. maybe my dream house now yeah and also great music because we get sitting on the dock of the bay by otis Redding, which so is so good, good. Yeah. yes again we love a needle drop and people actually playing records yeah. yeah so fantastic and i like them too just talking about like the music that their parents listened to music that they liked growing up it's a it's a really well done scene for people who are actually getting to know each other getting to fall for yes. one another not just hot for each other I think there's, yeah, there's a a, a more slight version of this scene where he just talks about his dad because we need to emotionally motivate that later. But that's not how he starts. He starts talking about his mother. Yes. And that is clearly such a like warm relationship. He is, again, emotionally very boyish in Mm -hmm. this scene, which really works. I think it's I think it's terrific. We've talked a lot about like Cruz the icon and Cruz the actor. I think he is so good in this film. He might never be better than Mm. he is in this film, honestly. Yeah, I think it's so complete a performance. Mm-hmm. This is followed up by that reshot elevator scene where she's so cute in the hat and her hair yes. is obviously so, so dark. <laughs> so dark, yes. They have really great chemistry there. And it's obviously, you know, has been written after the fact to inform where they were coming from and where they were going to in the finished edit. It's such a necessary scene. I'm so glad it's there. The information he has about the MIG is important, but she's attracted to him, but it's complicated, but they keep, someone keeps playing Take My Breath Away. <laughs> She doesn't invite students to her house, but kissing is so hot. It's really, uh-huh. we get, it's but they don't good kiss chemistry. here. It no, looks like no, they're no, going no. to, but they don't, which is such a favorite thing of mine. So good. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then to confirm this as really the high point run of the movie, I think, then it's Meg Ryan. 
Yeah. So yeah, here she lovely, comes. so adorable. Such a breath of fresh air. Yeah, we'll meet up with her in the bar a little later for her big scene. Yes. But her introduction on the tarmac is just so cute. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. We then have to turn the tables a little bit, and Charlie takes Maverick to task in front of the whole class for his strategic and tactical plan. Yeah, this is the only part I don't like. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, this dumb fight that they have where he's a real pissant about it, and he she's is, apologizing. He even is she a whiny baby. Yeah. She is in a very fantastic and sexy Porsche. Yeah. So, really, you know. No, 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 no. She comes out <laughs> ahead, definitely, but I just... He's such a wanker right here that it's really hard to forgive him later. Well, and it's so hard to use this as motivation. I think this is why we go back to add the elevator scene. Because if we cut from that great scene that they have at her house to her taking him to task in the briefing to him being a whiny baby to them having sex. Nope. (laughs) That does not track. No, not The elevator adds a lot to to elevate that plot Mm -hmm. and to keep it suspended as we move forward. Yeah. The sequence of her driving, though, in that. No, her driving is awesome it's so good it's so sexy but him walking away from her while she's calling out to him his engine so he can't hear her talk gross gross red red flag and a red flag that really feels out of step with the rest of the does yeah yeah i don't know where this comes from or at least that he would see himself doing it stop himself and apologize like Mm -hmm. that i buy but uh -uh. uh-uh i don't like it so we end up having gauzy, gauzy, monochromatic sex in that <laughs> very, mid-80s very kind of Scott-esque way. Scott-esque sex. Yes. Uh-huh. It is. Lots of tongue. By the standards of those things, though, quite hot. I, I do think so. love the way that Scott uses silhouette. I will say not just I in like the, the scene, but throughout. Yeah. I love the way he uses mm-hmm. light to the way that he does. It's, it's a really interesting kind of recurring visual motif for his cinematography, yeah. I think. And there's no nudity, is there? I don't. Not noticeable right? nudity. Not noticeable no. nudity. This is a yeah. PG film. Not even a PG-13. This is a PG film. Whoa. No one gets hurt except four MiGs which are exploded like G.I. Yeah. Joe at the end of the film. I mean... And Goose dies. Goose dying. Goose yeah, okay. bleeding from the head in the water is pretty upsetting, I would that say. That kind of upsetting scene doesn't stop the Lion King from being for all ages. Though. That's true, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Anyway... The sex scene is the midpoint of the film, mm-hmm. and if you needed confirmation of that, well, let's have Michael Ironside come in and offer a voiceover saying, we're now halfway through training, and Iceman is ahead of Maverick <laughs> by two points, really setting our expectations for the next sequence. Uh-huh. This is the beat where Maverick and Hollywood go up against Jester and Viper, but Maverick decides not to support his wingman. Instead, he goes solo against Viper. Distracted, they are eliminated by Jester. The second time that we're going to do this beat... It doesn't quite land because Maverick is eliminated from the competition by his carelessness and thoughtlessness. It Mm -hmm. would be perhaps narratively more interesting if one of the other pilots manages to paint Hollywood's plane and he is taken out and is angry at being taken out because Mm -hmm. Maverick abandoned him. But we're we're playing a slight variation on the beat that's going to recur, but that's where we are. In the locker room, we circle back again, repeated exposition. Mm -hmm. Maverick is dangerous. He doesn't follow the rules. Second verse, just like the first. And this is when he promises goose that it won't happen again this is and goose the says second i know time. Yeah. this is the second yeah and anthony edwards gives this fantastic i know yeah because we've had this conversation yeah and i know that it will happen again uh, and then we're going to have this conversation again yeah and you're going to say it's not going to happen again and i'm going to say i know again yeah and we're just going to be stuck in this uh, in this cyclical relationship which mm-hmm. only works because they obviously love each other so much yeah. which is what yeah. we are going to demonstrate with some real screenwriting craft in the next scene mm-hmm. we're back with meg ryan Yes. 
In the world's best alternate reality where we just hang out in the bar with kids just like <laughs> dancing and hanging out in the middle of the day, like nobody has to go to work or school or maybe it's a weekend. I don't know. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> you do love your films without conflict, don't you? Yes. <laughs> I just want to escape. <laughs> What do you think? I mentioned earlier how much I love Meg Ryan's line readings in mm. this. They're so elevated. Her accent is so, She's so adorable. present, so strong. I'm telling you one thing's for certain. There are hearts breaking wide open all over the world tonight. Why? Because unless you are a fool, a boy is off the market. He is 100% prime time in love with you. That's me, honey. Take me to bed or lose me forever. Show me the way home, honey. Do you like her performance here? Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. When she says, I wish I could warn you off, Pete, but I just love the guy to death. And it's so clear that she does. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Telling Charlie that it's so clear that Maverick's in love with her, which is just great girl talk. I don't know. Uh, are we getting, we never do get. A Bechdel test pass with no. any of these, do we? They are talking about boys, but it's charming and lovely the way that they talk to each other, too. Yes. Because they meet immediately as peers. There's no exactly. weird competitive energy. Uh, no one's trying to protect somebody else from this dangerous woman. There's none of that. Yeah. And I think that this might even be something of a, of a fringe condition for the Bechdel test because you're right. They are talking about men, but they are not talking for a man. They are not talking for the benefit of either the men in the room or the men in the audience. Mm, they are talking to okay. each other yeah. as I think rounded individuals would talk to one another, sure. as, as fully developed characters would talk to each other. You're right. I just love him to death. Hearts are breaking all over the world tonight. Yeah. He's got it bad for you. It's really lovely. It's, it's genuinely great. Yeah, it's really charming. And of course, we do the much more important thing, which is emphasize how strong and lovely because we get that great pivot at the end because <laughs> you stud take me to bed or lose me forever <laughs> establishing what a fantastic relationship they have mm -hmm. which works both in the present of the film and will work later in the film when we have to deal with the awful tragedy yeah. of goose's death mm -hmm. after they have been hanging out at the bar together Maverick and Charlie go on a ride on his motorcycle they end up making out on his motorcycle and she echoes that line yes what do you think of that I think it's cute I, I yeah. want to think it's cute, too. Yeah, I th I think it's showing that they're both kind of aspiring to the same thing. That's exactly yeah. it. I think there's something in Kelly McGillis's performance in that moment where she's just maybe a little dry, and it maybe sounds a little bit like she's making fun, which I do not oh, like and will not stand for. No, I don't think that's it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't think that that was it. I certainly I, don't think that's intended, mm -hmm. but it does just hit me. It hits the ear a little oddly. Interesting. Every time yeah. I watch that sequence. We are back to another exercise, this time with Maverick and Iceman going up against three enemy fighters. Iceman is slow to take his shot because he is just cool as ice. But when he finally pulls out to get out of the way, Maverick gets caught in his jet wash. He loses his engines. They eject, but Goose hits the canopy in an awful, awful, awful physical, yes. visceral effect. Just the Terrible. awful moment of impact. Really upsetting. You know exactly what has happened the minute that you see that, yeah. and that is... A masterful application of the filmmaker's craft, mm, I think. I think so, too. That's it, you guys. That's a wrap for Anthony Edwards. Thank he you for your so time terrific. on set. He was so extraordinary. Just an incredible, incredible performance. Mm -hmm. And really not the kind of performance that he's going to replicate much further yeah. in his career. He's generally going to be more sad than Goose is yeah, for the rest of his definitely. career. Yeah, definitely. 
yeah, with I miss moments that of levity. Absolutely. But he's so good here. All of his line readings are such interesting choices. Yes. What do you think of the death of Goose as a means of motivating Maverick? You know, the only reason that I think it works is because it's not Maverick's fault. If it was Maverick's fault, I think that it's a little gross and a little hacky. But the fact that it's a true accident, which still shakes him up because he just loved his friend so much, I think is really beautiful. Yeah, I think so too. I like, yeah, you're right. I like the way that we frame it. Mm -hmm. I like the way it has narrative weight. And I like the way that everyone around Maverick can see the narrative weight that it has. We don't at any point have any suggestion that he should be getting over it or that he's taking it too seriously or that he's taking it too personally. No one makes fun of him for the love that he bears for his brother. Yes. Like they say that you have to let him go. You have to move past it, but only because they seem to understand that it's a very difficult thing. The fact that that is the next scene too, that that is... uh, Maybe a little too fast, but yeah. Oh, I like it because I think that Mm -hmm. it speaks exactly to to Tom Scarrett being stern dad, right? Yeah. Like loving but stern. He comes to visit Maverick in the hospital and says, mm-hmm. you have to, or in the infirmary, and says, yes. you have to let him go. This is not me advising you. This is me telling you something yeah. for your health, for your well-being. And what? then instructs Michael Ironside to get him back in the air, which yeah. is great. What do you think about Maverick being in tidy whities for the scene? I think, and here's a great secret of mm-hmm. Hollywood craft, I think Tom Cruise has a great butt. <laughs> I it just seems does. such an interesting. No, I there's think, vulnerability I think, exactly. that they're going for. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're doing. Is that yeah. we are almost yes, what infantilizing, not quite infantilizing, yeah. but we are. That's yes, that's exactly how I feel about it. Exactly. Yes, we're really him, leaning like, on Tom shaving, Skerritt as dad. Like Dad comes yeah. in when you're shaving, you yeah. know. There's something we are leaning on Tom Skerritt, and I think that it works. He's Which something I you can love. lean on. Yeah, no, and, and mm-hmm. it works narratively. It works thematically. Mm-hmm. It speaks to this this desire for homosocialization, for yes. this like, yeah, yeah, right. We talk about the fraternity of these men, but it's mm-hmm. also the paternity, paternity of these men, right? Yeah. We also have to think about the the past and future generations too, mm-hmm. and developing those strong relationships is really important. I, I yeah. love that. That's going to revisit, of course, when we get to see Tom Skerritt's house populated by women yes and we understand a little more about the kinds of relationships that he has with these pilots Mm. i love viper's arc with maverick all the way through to graduation yeah where he gives him his deployment orders and sends him back to the enterprise Mm -hmm. and says that you'll find someone there to be your rio and if you don't call me i'll fly with you anytime yeah thanks dad (laughs) yes definitely it's a hell of a moment it is a great moment it really is We also get this beat with Iceman, who just offers his condolences, like obviously does not respect Maverick, is obviously feeling some measure of guilt himself. Yes, and as he should. As he should, right? Mm -hmm. Like like not not direct guilt, No, it's no one's fault, but everyone feels guilty, I think is great. I think so too. Yeah, I I think that makes them all good men. Where there's no posturing, but there's also no like grand reunification. Right. In a cheaper version of this film, that would be the moment that Iceman and Maverick are bonded together. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. Mm -mm. Iceman is still skeptical of Maverick's ability and reliability by the time we get out to the ship at the end of the film. We also get this heartbreaking scene where Maverick goes to pick up Goose's stuff. Yes. And Carol is just in the chair sobbing. It's so hard. She's so alone in that room, she just is. her and her kid. And the kid clearly doesn't quite understand what is happening yet. Yeah. Really heartbreaking. And I love her line. God, he loved flying with you, Maverick. Uh, he would have done it without you. He would have you. done it without you. He would have hated it, but he would have done it, which is like that extra little push for him it's, to get back in the air. That's what love is. Mm. I know that you're feeling this thing and that you are not going to want to do this 
without him, but you have to because it's for you. Mm. It's a thing that you need to be a whole person. Yeah. Maverick is exonerated by the Board of Inquiry. He returns to duty. He's paired with Sundown, but he is cautious. He's lost his nerve. We get that beat on the tarmac where he grabs Sundown by the lapels and, and tells him well, he'll fire his weapon when he's goddamn good and ready. Yeah. It's, it's good delivery, but we are start- this is like the fourth or fifth reenactment of a similar emotional beat mm-hmm. from Maverick. And the script is starting to lose its way now. We're starting to lose yeah, our pace. I agree. This We're starting to we lose, lose our momentum. Yeah. yeah. I don't mind that slowdown and losing the pace when we just get time to sit in Maverick's grief after mm-hmm. losing Goose. But losing the pace where he's just trying to find himself again is a little bit trickier for me. I start to think about popcorn yeah. or a bathroom break. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is where we hit the, the nadir, too. This is when after confronting Sundown, Maverick just quits. He just leaves the program. Yeah. We get the scene with Iceman that I mentioned earlier as he's changing back into his civilian clothes. Wolfman calls Charlie to tell her that Maverick has just left the program completely. Yeah. She tracks him down to this airport it's, bar, I guess. Yeah, he's it's interesting town. that he's at the bar, but not drinking. When she says, I'll have whatever he's got, and he says ice water. Yeah. There's something really nice about that. Yeah, I do like when she suggests that he's drinking hemlock. Yeah. She's smart. She's smart. And, and I like that about yeah. her. Yeah, no, that's true. But this is just a slow scene that doesn't communicate any any emotional intent no. or certainly no plot intent. I, I like that we show that their relationship is still so new that she doesn't have enough, I'm going to say, emotional authority to really be able to help him through what he's going through. That's an interesting And so read. she's on the outside. She's not able, like she even says, I know I can't help you right now, but I am here if you want me or need me yeah. or whatever. But just knowing that this is a level of intimacy that's beyond what they have right now. You're right. I like that as a take very grief. much. Yeah. yeah. That she, of course, is not the person who can bring him back. Dad is the person who can bring him back. So mm. he goes to see Viper. It's a little unclear why he goes to see Viper, if this is just an explanation for why he is leaving. I think he wants to be talked back into it. I, th- I think yeah. he g- he makes that pretty clear. Isn't that explicit in the script? Mm, I don't think that so. he says, basically, tell me... No, because he's, no? he goes to Viper's house and he's just looking at the pictures on the wall when Viper comes downstairs and is like, oh, yeah, that's your dad. I flew with him. Let me tell you all about him. Mm-hmm. So you think he just went to say goodbye? I don't know. I, I, it's just not articulated. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think you could speculate most likely that he goes there because he knows he's going to get some kind of pep talk. He's going to get some kind of yeah. inducement to he's stay. He's not quite ready to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, of course, that his father just died a hero. And the whole thing has been classified because they were on the wrong side of a line on the map. Again, distinguishing this yes. military fraternity from civilian authority. Right. Which I actually like as a distinction. Mm-hmm. We should make that distinction and we should make that distinction really, really clear. Because when you start associating the military fraternity with civilian authority, your countries fall to dystopic yes. you know, fascism. Like, yes, like that's absolutely. A, mm-hmm. Moved by this and with his father issues beginning to resolve, Maverick decides to graduate. He congratulates Iceman on winning the trophy. Tom Skerritt is a proud dad in the background. Mm-hmm. Iceman, Hollywood, and Maverick are all immediately deployed back to the Enterprise. Immediately. Where like we started the movie. Not yeah. even get out of graduation. It's yeah. pretty good. Just to move us into that last act, it's that exciting. last phase yeah. of the story. Maverick is paired with Merlin, who has presumably just been kicking around. Just been there, yeah. <laughs> Swabbing the deck yeah. for five weeks or however long it's supposed to be. They are giving air support to a rescue operation on an American communication ship that has been stranded in foreign waters. Iceman voices his concerns about Maverick, but, you know, the music is playing. The theme is rising. We can feel heroism in the air. We are transitioning into our heroic mode. 
the battle's already been won, in effect, and what remains is a formality. We get this great sequence of shots of Maverick just inspecting his aircraft out mm-hmm. there on the deck with that sky behind them. Again, it's yeah. so, so strong. Iceman and Hollywood engage the two enemy MiGs that turn out to be first four, then five. Yeah. They're in big trouble. Mm. Hollywood is hit and they eject. Maverick is launched from the carrier to ride to Iceman's rescue. But then conveniently, the launch catapults are both broken and won't be fixed for 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> 10 minutes. This whole thing will be over in two minutes. Thanks, it's James. It's all on you, Mav. Here's your check. Pleasure working with you. <laughs> <laughs> Maverick engages, but they again hit a jet wash. He loses control of the plane. He starts to spin for a moment, but then recovers, which Mm -hmm. is just a really nice, you know, conquering of the established challenge there. Mm -hmm. But he is still hesitating. Shaking up, yeah. Until he appeals to the ghost of Goose. Talk to me, Goose. It's really powerful. Yeah. It's really powerful to bring that back all the way here at the end of the story. And to have, as Maverick does too, the presence of Anthony Edwards be so tangible even though he is no longer in this narrative. It's really strong. It's such Mm -hmm. good characterization that he endures in the memory and in in the the presence of the other characters, you know? Yes. So Maverick pulls it all together, rejoins the fight, rescues Iceman. He shoots down three megs. Iceman gets one, so he's not going home, you know, empty-handed or whatever. (laughs) The other two run. We're returning to that idea of of scaring people off. And the the dominance is more than just violent. It is also an exercise in excellence and, Mm -hmm. and technical proficiency. Back on the carrier, we aggressively assert our heterosexual respect for one another. (laughs) Now kiss. Now kiss. (laughs) I I am so caught by that scene. Mm -hmm. I both like it and really don't like it at Mm. the same time. What what do you think about it? You can be my wingman anytime. Yeah. Not a thank you for saving my ass. I was in a situation that was not my fault and not of my making. But thank you for being a proficient pilot and a dedicated wingman. They're both themselves, which I really like. Yeah. Neither of them suddenly break <laughs> and are somebody that they're not, you know? That is both the best way of, of putting that and the most condemnatory way of putting <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> we get the scene with uh, on, on the carrier of Maverick making peace with Goose's memory and throwing the dog tags. Very romantic. I do sometimes wonder if Carol would have liked those. Yeah. Or if Miles Teller. The little boy yeah, would have liked you those. know, maybe so. Maybe more than the ocean, perhaps. Maybe more. Yeah. <laughs> would they have liked them more than Ariel? <laughs> Down there next to... She's got thingamabobs of planting. <laughs> the heart of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> then we wind up back at Miramar. This is just a formality now. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The movie is over, you guys. People are leaving the theater yeah, at this time. Yeah, we are definitely. back at Miramar. We're back with Charlie. He's going to take up the teaching position. And that's the end of Top Gun. What do you think about him deciding that he's going to go to teach and not go into I like it. combat? I, I like it because teaching is essentially one of the great distinctions that we see through the training exercises mm-hmm. in the middle of the film is that our heroes are paired, Pilot and Rio, right? Mm-hmm. But the enemy pilots, Jester, Viper, they are solo. They're in single-seater jets. Yeah. There's this idea that teaching is more of a solitary occupation. He can't or doesn't want to fly with anyone but Goose. But he can still do this. He can still help. He can still serve. He can still be a hero. He can still, most importantly, be excellent. He will be the best teacher that Top Gun ever had. Yeah. You know? 
Well, I like how much it, it puts him away from his uh, Taps character, David, whatever David it Sean, was. Yeah. David Sean, yeah. Who was there for like combat and glory. Exactly. And, the grandeur of, right. of violence. Yeah. Whereas Maverick is really there because he loves to fly. He just loves to fly. Yeah. 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 And that's coupled, of course, with his motorcycle riding, too. Yeah. And as, as Charlie says to him when they're sitting at the bar, it's about speed yeah. for him, mm-hmm. which... Okay. Yeah. I mean, the need. you can you can kind of argue that even just mm-hmm. looking at the text of the film, you don't have to do too much backfilling on his character to say that Not yes, what it's really about is is yeah, mastery over mastery over his vehicle, yeah, mm-hmm. and by extension over the world around him. Yeah. I don't mind it as a beat. I'm not I like sure. It. I feel so great about him and Charlie being together. Particularly after she told him that she got the job in Washington and was presumably going to oh, be promoted. Oh, I move didn't away. get that she was going to stay. Did you? I did, but I'm not sure that I got that because the film told me that that was what was going to happen. I think I maybe yeah. got that because I assumed that they're having a conversation at the end of the film and we're about to fade to black any second. Yeah. Interesting. I, I got the sense, I guess, that she came back. Because what you say, I heard all the best ones come back or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe she did give it up to come back. We know that they don't work out. Spoilers for Maverick. <laughs> Maybe she got to DC and they realized, oh no, that wasn't a dive. That wasn't what was happening. You misunderstood. That is Top Gun. It's an undeniable classic. So I'm much not fun. sure that there is a more influential or iconic or significant movie for Tom Cruise personally in yeah. his entire filmography. I think that this is That's the one. This is the star persona. Yeah. it's right, And you're right. Maybe we don't completely have it yet. There's a little bit of refinement to be done. There's mm. a little bit of evolution to be done. But this is absolutely it. Where are we going to put this on the list? Oh, it's top. It's top gun. Top of the list. It's going to be really hard to put anything else above this for a long time, I think. I don't know if anything will ever go above it. By most metrics. Yeah, I think you're right. Certainly ranking iconicity. Yeah. Very, very, very oh important. God. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we are going to see better films. I think we're certainly going to see more robust and accomplished films, but certainly nothing as important and as yeah. good. But you're right. There's a chance that we're not going to see the 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 combination of something yeah. that is this good and this important. Right. I would be excited to do it, but it Here's seems hoping. unlikely That's right now. That's why we're here every yeah. week, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, I think, yes, the datedness of it all. I would love sure. to see some more developed relationships. I would love to see... Please, this is our eighth episode of The Last Star in Hollywood. One of these movies is going to pass the Bechdel test. You think so? They have to eventually, I am right? not at all certain they that one will. They have to eventually. You... Yeah, no, by the time we get to the firm, by the time, yeah, by the time we're doing Grisham. Grisham? Maybe. I don't know, baby. We'll see. <laughs> I'm hoping. It's going to happen yeah. where we least expect it. It's going to happen in like the back third of Cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot that scene where those two waitresses discuss Kierkegaard. <laughs> I must admit, in my mm-hmm. in my crude and rude notes that I have written down here in front of me, I have the little header on the list to remind me that we have to have this discussion. And under that, uh, I have just written, first, yeah, come on. Yeah, first, <laughs> come on. Yes, obviously. <laughs> so that Agreed. will do it. It goes in mm-hmm. ahead of Legend, which is ahead of The Outsiders. That's a pretty good top three. Yeah. Already. Yeah, definitely so. Next week, we move on from this splashy commercialism to some old-fashioned Hollywood prestige and the film that finally gets Paul Newman his Academy Award after being nominated six times previously. Wow. We're going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's 1986 film, The Color of Money, mm-hmm. released, yes, a scant six months after Top Gun. Wow. This is really the year that defines Tom Cruise. So cool. I, I haven't seen this movie yet, so I'm excited. I'll have to watch The Hustler, which I haven't seen either. So 
Yes, this is yeah. the sequel to the 1961 film, The Hustler. So mm -hmm. if you're looking to be a completist about this, I say as someone who has read two books and like 50,000 words of academic writing this week, <laughs> just to support this ridiculous podcast. If you're looking to be a completist, probably go watch The Hustler too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. If you would like to help this ridiculous critical and academic effort, mm -hmm. then head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Pod. As of this recording, we have just passed the middle of the month, which means that our vote results are in. And Indeed. that means, to everyone's astonishment, we're going to be talking about Itumama Tambi. No, I'm kidding. We're going to be talking about Dirty Dancing on the Patreon <laughs> exclusive this month. We're also going to try to get that out a little early. You're going to be listening to this, dear American audience, on the day before Thanksgiving. We're going to try and make it so that the Dirty Dancing episode drops tomorrow because we know how the holidays can be. And Ooh. if you're not in the United States, if you're not celebrating Thanksgiving, you just get a Thursday episode. That's nice. <laughs> Sometimes Thursday episodes are good. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. That is Me going too. to be a blast. Such a great film. And we've got some exciting extra content heading for mm. the Patreon page over the holidays, too, as we move into the cold months of December, away from the heat of Miramar in California. <laughs> All of that and more available at patreon.com slash laststarpod. And just before we go, a humble appeal from us to you. If you like this show, go tell somebody about this show. Please, Go post yeah. on your Twitters. Go post on Do. your threads. Go post on your Instagrams. Go post on your Facebook. Hey, even post on Facebook. Why not? <laughs> if you're inclined to do such a thing, it should be about us. Why? <laughs> Thank you so much. You can get in touch. Laststarpod at gmail.com. Laststarpod.com. Or over on your favorite social media site of choice. Mm -hmm. That'll do it. We'll talk to you next week. See you soon.